Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. This week for Christian Slater, September, you'll have to stay up later than that for Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and Twilight Zone, the movie. Can't remember which one he was in? Neither can we. For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at MNDriveInPod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to TheMidnightDriveIn at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food or drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater. That's why, to familiarize you with the movie rating symbols which will be used by this theater, we present the following guide for parents and young people. X, no one under 17 admitted. That's accurate. Always because of pizza. No, always. We're going to have the, last we're, week. We're gonna have the ban Thursday pizza. I think it's always because of food. I don't think it's always pizza, though. Seems like it's been pizza more than once. That's what I think about that. Sounds like pizza. For week three of Slater, we have Gleaming the Cube and Airborne. Stupid One meme just sounds popped up like on my, being uh, a master of the Rubik's Cube, and, and the says, other please, sounds please, like God, something you when you not have use a Colin gold. Kaepernick in any commercial way, we need to you probably have no friends. <laughs> I don't know a fair I'm number of those conservatives are, uh, are burning them the shoes while they're wearing them, so you can get some funny videos out of the condom thing. I'll stop looking at Facebook. It's distracting. Yeah. Finishing off Slater September, this week's double thing. feature is Heather's it was just, and it was just pulled up Sorority was Row. And it just uh. keeps uh, updating. Gosh, yeah, stop it. why not just throw Meme me Girls I'm getting in another cat too. this weekend. Why are you getting so many cats? Well, my parents got a kitten mm-hmm. uh, because they wanted an outdoor kitten just for like mouse mousing and things like that and uh two months after they got the kitten found out that my dad's job is moving into florida and they're moving to florida can't take the cat with them are there no cats allowed in florida they're gonna have to find a house and they're gonna be like renting an apartment for a while and they don't think that they'll be able to find an apartment that'll let them have the cat Your parents are part of the problem, Noah. Well, so now the cat's my cat. <laughs> At least he's hilarious. So that's one one good thing. He's a psycho kitten. Uh, Noah's going to have a zoo like my house. A menagerie. Did I tell you guys about how there's no animals in my entire house? Yeah, but you got a kid. That's like worse. Hey, you got a baby. Baby's five animals. I don't know. 
exactly how that weird American math works, but I'm pretty sure that's not accurate. A baby is not five animals. 100% accurate. It is, especially if you uh, consider the exchange rate for Canadian. I don't. I don't know if we want to be discussing the exchange rate on babies. That feels like it's going to get us flagged. <laughs> I bet them Canadian babies are going for a good penny right now. Like good Canadian stock. Our, our big fear right now is Americans sneaking across the border to have their kids. It's like, what do you call it? Like anchor babies? If your kid's automatically you trying to get your kid to be a Canadian citizen so they can get out of your country when the time comes. Does, does, uh, does Canada have that rule? I don't know all the details on that, but I would assume if you're born here that you're a Canadian citizen. I oh. haven't heard otherwise. I'm going to be driving up to Canada then, being a man that decided to have a kid. I don't know if you've heard, Doug, but now we're catching these people who have been faking being born in America since they were born in America and got their birth certificates. Is that actually a thing? Oh my god, yes. They're, they're revoking, they're, revoking they're, Hispanic people who were born in America's passports. In saying that they're using fake birth certificates since birth. Yeah. That, is, that is the literal phrase. Mm -hmm. So their parents gave them a fake birth certificate like the day they were born? When they were born. Aren't birth certificates issued by like some sort of formal authority that would yes. know if a baby was born or not? And they're issued when you're born. So. I know, I, I, yeah. I know that's how it works up here. Like, you have a baby, they give you a birth certificate for that baby. So I'm assuming they've been uh, breaking into America, right? And they give birth at the exact same time as as uh, what I would assume in Trump's head is a white and or orange person, right? And then they're taking that, that white baby and they're just throwing it the opposite direction right over the border. They're like, baby swap, like a... But what's what's the type of bird that does that? That like lays its eggs in another bird's nest? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Some National Geographic shit. <clears throat> also, Roy Moore is suing Sasha Baron Cohen for ninety-five million dollars. Right. Because he used a fake pedophile detector on him on his TV show. Pretty funny. But that clip was pretty funny. <sighs> and he is a pedophile. So, like, so technically, it wasn't even inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say good luck to that, because those, those uh, agreements they have to sign have to be, like, rock solid. Sure. And with all the shit that Sasha Baron Cohen has gotten away with over the years, his yeah. legal team must know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, apparently they tried five different people tried to sue him for Borat and they all got thrown out because of the agreements that they signed beforehand. Well didn't even like the village where he filmed the supposed Kazakh stand scenes tried to like have the film stopped or something? And that probably like, that town couldn't get it done. I don't think individuals are gonna have much chance. No. Like, hey, you made me look stupid on TV because I was myself. I'm gonna sue you. It was a perjury trap. Although now, in a hilarious turn of event, Donald Trump is demanding libel laws be strengthened <laughs> because of people spreading 
false things, like a president not being born in America. <laughs> yeah, how about we do that, but only backdate it to when yeah he started all that bullshit and see how that works. Yeah, I was I was gonna say if he wants to admit that he's guilty of liable and serve prison time for liable, I'm totally okay with him changing those laws to ensure that he does the maximum amount of prison time. I'm not sure that's his goal. <laughs> no, it's not his goal, but I still think it should happen. Yeah, but I'm t- it's the spirit of compromise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, God, he's such a fucking moron. Livid about this book that came out. About have you heard, have livid, you livid about the op-ed piece that called him a sixth grader. But if you go online, you can hear the phone conversation between Bob Woodward and Donald Trump. Where yeah. Trump's like, Why didn't you interview me for the book? And Woodward's like, well, I called like everybody I know and asked if I could get in. and They all said they'd get back to me, and none of them did. <laughs> And at one point, like, Kellyanne Conway wanders into, like, the Oval Office or wherever Trump's talking from. And, and he's like, Kellyanne's right here, right now. And Woodward's like, well, I asked her if she'd ask you to speak with me, and she never got back to me. And Trump makes her get on the phone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite entertaining. Good lord. Oh, oh. Uh, that's why I'm having my kid up in Canada. If I ever have kids, no. Right. Dog. She gets if she gets pregnant. Just get her to that like seven and a half month mark, and then go there. Yep. Dang. We already invented a rule to keep Noah. We'll find one for Brian too. <laughs> hey, that doesn't mean I can't anchor a new baby. <laughs> Oh, good lord. So do I sound echoey this week? I don't think you sounded that echoey last week. Oh, yeah, it was pretty bad if you listen to the episode. I did yeah, listen. It, didn't, we, listen. It, like it, it didn't show up on our end. Mm. While we were talking to you, so. <clears throat> so I was going through it, I'm like, why? I'm like, is somebody, like, somebody not wearing headphones and I'm just echoing into their microphone? Like, what the fuck's going on? And then I forgot that this stupid microphone, for some reason, has a knob that says echo on it. And then, like, I remember it falling out of the microphone holder a couple weeks ago. And it must have uh, hit that knob and turned the echo up. I don't know why a microphone needs an echo knob. But I guess if you pay $25 for it, you get what you pay for. Cat, get out of here. Got a cat just jumping into my lap and then off. <laughs> oh, mine's trying to walk across my keyboard, so. All right, let's try to keep the cat talk to a minimum. All right, so how do we want to do this? Do we want to break down each segment and then discuss? Or... Uh, Good job, everybody. Good job chiming in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Why didn't... I, this I whole... do believe I just said. I don't know. This whole thing was your idea, Brian. You right. forced it upon us. We got no say in the movies, so I don't see how it's our responsibility to organize the show. I'm just asking Tell your thoughts. I didn't want to start doing it. I didn't want to start reviewing it, and you guys be like, we should have done this differently. Well, I'm going to do that regardless of what you pick. So. <laughs> okay. John Lithgow. 
All right. Well, I guess I guess let's go segment by segment. But then we'll we'll knock it out that way. But then we'll have to dis- decide whether the segments combined deserve like a recommend or not recommend because correct. Do you have a list of all the segments? No, but I mean, I know them. I knew them before I even watched them today. Because I've watched these movies like a billion times. Because I sure as fuck am not going to remember every segment. Jesus (laughs) Christ. I'll remember it once you guys mention it. Let's start with a a general discussion because we do have a big contradiction between these two movies. And one has like the full like wraparound story that comes up with an excuse to tell each of the other stories. Mm -hmm. And one is just the here's a segment, here's a segment, here's another segment. Which one of those do you guys like better? Um, between comparing the two, I do enjoy Twilight Zone the movie better. But I mean, the format. Do you no. guys like the, having the wraparound? Or? I, think the wrap, I think wraparounds are generally better. Although Twilight Zone kind of has a wraparound. Kind of. Just not in the middle more like a bookend. Yeah. Bookend, yeah. I, yeah. I, I do have to say, with with Twilight Zone, it does feel to me like you're just watching three things that are all almost like, especially because we live in the Netflix world now, which obviously they couldn't have predicted in the 82 or whatever, but it just feels like you're just watching a show and the next episode just starts automatically. <laughs> and it, it almost feels like you could turn it off at any given time, whereas with the tells from the dark side you do I, it does give it a sense of continuity it was all one big movie which I kind of like mm-hmm. I generally prefer that mm-hmm. yeah I generally like wraparounds but I don't know I think uh, Twilight Zone worked better for me uh, between the two as far as format okay and it may just be the nostalgia for the Twilight Zone and the fact they got Burgess Meredith to do the voiceover which, that's uh, probably a big part of it like, Which I was excited about. There's so many... Well, both of these movies, really, but they all have these people in them that just bring a natural... Uh, I don't know. like You naturally kind of want to like the movie because you're seeing these names and hearing these voices and stuff. Mm-hmm. I concur. All right, well... <laughs> <laughs> it turns out this part of the discussion was really boring, and I'm sorry really? I brought this up. <laughs> So, what do you guys think we should do? Go segment by segment and discuss each one, or? <laughs> well, Doug, I know you're a big Twilight Zone fan, so why don't you sort of guide us through the Twilight Zone movie? Uh, okay. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Do I do it segment by segment, or do I do one long plot description? Just, just do it segment by segment. Yeah. All right. So the opening, the opening couple of minutes is just a prologue. It's really just. Uh, Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd driving down the highway, singing for what you could argue is entirely too long, and then uh, playing some jokes on each other to try and uh, scare each other. Finally followed by Aykroyd, turns out is actually some sort of monster. Mm-hmm. Um, really simple, just a, a, like a way to introduce, get you kind of back into the world of the Twilight Zone. Um, through their conversation, they kind of mention they are fans of the original series and stuff. I, I, I like this little opening. I thought it was kind of a fun way to just kind of jump into the movie. 
I have not seen this in so fucking long. I completely forgot Dan Aykroyd was in. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, Dan Aykroyd? And then you're like, no, Dan Aykroyd, no. It is an interesting decision to have Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks in there, two comedic actors, um, really setting the tone, I think, that we know the Twilight Zone is known as a scary series, but not really. Don't. You can go ahead and relax, prepare to not be very scared during this movie. Mm-hmm. We're not going there. Yeah, although when I was younger and watched this, probably I was like seven or eight, probably shouldn't have been watching it. The, uh, the, yeah, the turn by Dan Aykroyd into a monster freaked me the fuck out. Yeah, that is the one scare in the movie that I remember when I was a kid, like, legitimately got me. Yeah. Like, I remember the movie pretty well from being a kid, and I just, I don't ever remember that sense of, like, fear, which, when we get into the other stories, it's, there isn't, it's more of a fantasy uh, stories Mm -hmm. than horror which is, yeah. I guess, consistent with the Twilight Zone. Many of the episodes were not scary. Many of them were just kind of fun little tales of mm-hmm. supernatural or whatever. Yeah, and it didn't help that my dad, if we were driving somewhere and it was dark out, would just look over at me and say, do you want to see something really scary? That's and awesome. I, I'm just like, I would like freak out. And now I'm thinking he was a horrible parent. I think he was an awesome parent. <laughs> I wish somebody had done that to me when I was a kid. Uh, God damn, Dan Aykroyd. So you want, should we jump out and jump into the probably the most uh, controversial segments in this movie? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how controversial it's going to be amongst the three of us, but I bet you it would piss off some other people. Uh, so. Time Out is the first story, and Vic Morrow plays a guy who recently did not get a promotion, and therefore he hates every other race on the planet. Because he was beaten out by a Jew. Yeah, so it, it starts. It starts with him complaining about uh, about Jewish people because for some reason he he actually says like ridiculous, over the top '80s racism stuff, like. Jews are already rich. Why would a Jew need a promotion anyway? <laughs> and just ridiculous things like that. Yeah. It falls into complaining about black people. And I think it's his, he's most racist against Asians because he really gets into not only does he hate them, but he also like implies that Vietnamese people and Japanese people are the same when they clearly are not. Mm-hmm. Um, those are two different countries for some of our less educated listeners. Considering, um, considering he said he was in Vietnam, too. Yeah, no. know. <laughs> yeah, it's because he even uses racial slurs that I don't think apply across the board, agently. Like, I don't, without mm-hmm. getting too deep into it, I, I think some of those words are meant to be anti a certain <laughs> a certain uh, Asian community and not the entire mm-hmm. group of Asian communities. But anyways, yeah. Um, so anyway, he eventually storms out of the bar, uh, but when he leaves the door, he finds himself in Nazi-occupied France, and it becomes pretty clear that uh, he, other people are seeing him as a Jewish person, and are, he's therefore being chased around by Nazi soldiers. Uh, somewhere along the line, he you know, 
quantum leaps into being a black guy <laughs> in the southern United States. Oh, during right. quantum, the quantum leap. Yeah, quantum leaping is uh, probably the perfect way to describe <laughs> sort of what he does. Yeah, because he, he ends up being a black guy and he's being chased by the Ku Klux Klan. Chased uh, by John Larroquette, too, of all people. Yeah, totally, totally forgot that guy was in this movie. <laughs> or too. possibly never knew. And I was like, John Larroquette, no, don't be a racist. <laughs> What's funny is like th- none of those people say nearly as racist of things as this guy said at the beginning of the movie, but we can get into that. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, yeah, he swims underwater, comes up in the Vietnam War, where he is being shot at by American soldiers. He's basically just taken a beating this whole time. Mm. Um, conveniently, he's Vic Morrow, so he's tough as shit, and uh, he can take it. Eventually, finds himself back outside that bar and as he's trying to get in he is finally captured by the Nazis from the first little bit and taken away to presumably concentration camp or his death or wherever Nazis like to take him mm-hmm. so essentially this is just um, a long narrative discussion about white privilege oh yeah you think you got it so tough this is what other races have actually gone through mm. <laughs> is essentially the, the what's happening here um, which is really kind of an interesting thing to be saying in a 1983 movie, because this type of discussion simply wasn't taking place at that time, to my recollection. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really quite interesting that they would, in a major movie like this, they would have, they would tackle this sort of topic. Yeah, I mean, Twilight Zone was always kind of known for subtly sort of talking about that kind of stuff this obviously is way on the nose with it yeah but it still works really well um and i messaged both of you guys after i was watching it i'm like this is weirdly relevant with all the bullshit that's going on recently especially yeah, people yeah. lighting their nikes on, on fire because a black guy was in the nike ad it it, it is honestly it is like oddly relevant and I, I didn't expect it to be and I'm sure they didn't when they were making it they were hoping that that um, it wouldn't be relevant in the future that it would yeah. serve more as like a, serve, serve more of like a historical document than a discussion yeah. of current events but, but then later it takes a left turn in the opposite direction <laughs> well we'll get to that <laughs> Uh, I suppose yeah. we should also mention the fact that this movie uh, murdered Vic Morrow. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, I, that's I, the controversial part. I, I think you could argue that, like, okay, so for people who don't know, Vic Morrow and two little kids were killed um, on set when a, mm. a helicopter crashed into them, decapitating two of them and crushing the third. Um,. I, you can go ahead and argue that Vic Morrow's death was an accident, but considering those two little kids were being paid under the table because it was illegal to hire them to work on this set. Yeah. Yeah. That's awfully close to a murder. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they took a lot of, they cut a lot of corners with some of the safety stuff as well. It was yeah. just all around like a bad, like this was, this is one of those nights where everybody should have just been like, let's not, let's not shoot tonight. Let's not yeah. do this. And then basically because of this accident, the uh, 
the Screen Actors Guild and all of them basically rewrote what is essentially the OSHA laws for actors. (sighs) So, I don't want to talk about that anymore because it makes me sad. (laughs) 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 What did you... Did you guys think this was a good segment? Because I thought it was really well executed. I think Vic Morrow's performance is really good. Mm. And I think it watching him go from being like this complete asshole to just clearly being the victim over the course of these next few sequences is like, it's really effective and it really kind of just you really, when he's running away from like the Ku Klux Klan and stuff you're rooting for him to get away even though he was being the total racist asshole five minutes ago. And I thought that was really well done. That's, that can't be an easy thing to pull off. I don't know exactly what it is that they that they do, but well, I think it's I think it's interesting too that despite the fact that all this stuff's happening to him, I don't believe there's actually any growth in Vic Morrow's character mm-hmm. because, like in the in the part where he's being chased by the Ku Klux Klan, and uh, I'm not going to use the word, but they use a pejorative word for black people on him. It, it does insinuating he is a black person in this scenario, and his response to that is that you know leave me alone or whatever. It's like, no, I'm a white! (laughs) Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, I don't think this character learns his lesson throughout the course of this, which is I think consistent with the original Twilight Zone series. The message is there for the audience to see, but it's not for the characters to learn it within the short period of time they have. Well, from what I read, his character was supposed to have a redemption at the end when he saves two children and uh, of course, that was the scene they were shooting when he died. God damn it! How did we get back here? <laughs> Sorry. So I think they kind of re re-edited some of it to give it that the ending that we ended up with. Yeah. Um, which still works. I think the ending we get is more Twilight Zone. I think I, I yeah. obviously can't speak to whether the other ending would have worked as well. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the Twilight Zone ending: the getting taken away in the in the cattle car full of people that you were bad-mouthing at the beginning of the episode that's mm. that's what you would expect to see yeah so i think it it actually works better as a twilight zone segment because of that ending mm. yeah i of course even knew that this uh this segment was coming because as i mentioned i've seen this movie like a billion times but still and even knew like what it was and kind of what happened but i don't know Watching it this time, maybe it's just everything that's going on or just being older or whatever, but I feel like it really worked this time. Well, it, it feels like if this segment were made in 2018, we'd all be saying, like, oh, like they're laying it on too thick, and you mm-hmm. know, it's just that typical kind of left-wing message that's getting thrown into things a lot lately. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it was made in 1980 or 82 whatever it was yeah. like i think that really gives it that a stronger feeling like oh like nobody else would have been making this segment back then it's only these filmmakers that chose to do that mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's also interesting that uh so I, d- I don't think it's any mystery to most people our age that generally the 80s are considered to be a super fucking racist time mm-hmm. and the fact that you're looking at how the characters are portrayed and all that kind of stuff and realizing that there's no fucking... <laughs> like, we've, 
I feel like we have not progressed at all as a fucking society. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> all right. It's it is it's oddly depressing to to just sit yeah. here and contemplate the fact that messages that were you know relevant forty years ago still need to be said, and you would think shouldn't somebody was if so if people were saying it back then shouldn't it have sunk in by now? Yeah, oh. I f- I feel like with everything that's gone on in the past couple of years that we felt like things were getting so much better. But then, kind of found out that Nazis were just hiding better, and now feel like they can just do whatever and not have to worry about it. Yeah. Now we've got Nazi parades. Oh yeah, parades are fun though. Fucking Nazi parades. You guys want to talk about kick the can? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really liked. I really liked the time times. Of, Time out or whatever. Yeah, time out. Yeah, time out. I, I I really enjoy that one too. I think it, yeah, it's extremely well educated. Even if you don't agree with the message, which you're probably mad at us by now and stop listening to this podcast, but you would. I think you would still just have to appreciate the fact that that they were putting this type of message in at a time when nobody else would have. Is really. Mm. I think it's it's hard to compliment the filmmakers because we keep coming back to the. The negative yeah, yeah. results well, yeah. of the they way killed, things were handled. They killed three people. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the three might have been considered. Anyways, I'm <laughs> trying to justify it. <laughs> All uh, right. Did you read the really weird thing that Vic Morrow said on the set of another movie? No. Uh, I can't remember which movie it was, but um, his character was supposed to be in a helicopter, and he requested uh, a stunt double. And he told somebody that he always had this weird premonition that he would die in a helicopter crash. So he didn't ever want to be in a helicopter. (laughs) 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 That's what IMDb says, whether it's true or not. It's it's a fun little takeaway. That's, I don't know. That's, I don't know if you want to refer to it as a fun little takeaway. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's a good segment. It's it's hard to enjoy because I really like a lot of Vic Morrow movies, and it's this movie's mm. the reason why there aren't more Vic Morrow movies. Yeah, but it does right, tie, tie us back into our last Shark Week episode as well, with Vic Morrow. So I'm always trying to tie sure. us back to Shark Week. <laughs> you just want to get to another Shark Week. I really do. <laughs> I was trying to figure out one before we before we logged on. Um, anyways, kick the can is a really simple story about uh, old guy checks into a home for the aged and convinces all the curmudgeonly old people to sneak outside to play at night, and then they all revert to younger versions of themselves, mm-hmm. and they're all playing, and they are all left with the decision of whether to go back to being old and live out the rest of their lives, but just knowing that they could have a bit of a younger spirit, or they actually have the option of just staying kids. And most of them pick being uh, being old, but just moving on with life. Except for Peter Pan. Except for, yeah, except for the Peter Pan character, who's actually supposed to be Robin Hood. <laughs> Ironically, but yeah, yeah. One kid decides to, so we get that little twist ending where he bounces off on his own, 
And then, of course, the one old guy that refused to go outside and play is playing in the yard as the story ends. And uh, our magical character moves on to the next old folks' home to do the same for them, presumably. All right. Or possibly because so- <laughs> he's actually retired. It could be just because he's this is that was his last one, and he's just gone to the other one to just live out his days. So Noah has a lot to say about this. I, I was I was going to say, there's a totally other version of this story that goes something like a whole bunch of doing all right white people are taught a lesson by a magical black person, which is a very stereotypical racist trope. Yeah. I mean, I recognize that the trope is racist, but I think there's something to be said for the fact that in this particular case, the magical character is played by Scatman Crothers. Mm-hmm. And he has a particular aura about him where he is just, he feels like a magical character. That's, he why, he's, that's why he's cast in these types of roles, and I don't think race is the reason for that necessarily. You don't think so? You don't think that maybe there's some implications about his favorite thing when he was a child was playing kick the can. Okay, you have way bigger of an accent than he did through the entire segment. But I know. But I'm telling you, you d- you didn't notice that he he gets a little shuck and jivey when talking about that part. Yeah. I just think, I also think, again, like, that's how that actor delivers lines in other movies as well. I, I know. I'm not, I'm not saying he doesn't. I love Scatman Brothers. I'm saying that this is un, unlike the, the flagrant racism that the last statement dealt with in a positive way. This is more like the weird, subtle, systematic racism that people were too dumb to get that they were being racist. Specifically Steven Spielberg? Specifically Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it's probably not the only time. Well, I mean, yeah. Honest. No, I mean, like, I, this concept of the the sort of magical Negro character um, that is kind of typical in Hollywood movies I recognize that it became a trope and that it so it became obvious that they when they wanted someone to be like this magical heroic guy it's like get the one black guy in the movie to do that but it in this particular case I just feel like we're dealing with a, a particular actor who has a reputation and a certain aura about him on screen that he does feel that way and it, it's not just a race thing it, I, I I'm not saying it's just a race thing. Like it's not it's not his fault or the director's fault or the writer's fault that that trope exists. And what would you do? Deny him the role and cast somebody who's less suited to the role? Well, you might do something like not have all of the people whose problems being solved be white people. Mm. <laughs> I mean, based. Okay, I, I can it's see that. Like but based on the based on the last segment, according to the racist Vic Morrow character, white people and Jewish people are different, and there are certainly Jewish characters in this story. Does that help? I don't know. <laughs> not, for, not for this particular joke. I don't. I don't know how that works. So, 
<laughs> I, listen, I like the story, right? And I love Scatman Crothers. I'm just pointing out it's weird to have them right in a row, the one that's like very aware of racism, and then the very next one be one of the weird racist things that people <laughs> have a tendency to try to overlook. Like Doug's trying to do. Because he's Kanata racist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Doug's All right. I don't so, think so. So racism aside, what did we think of this segment? <laughs> <laughs> We're having to say that too often on the show lately. <laughs> racism aside. <laughs> Uh, I always thought this was kind of my least favorite segment of the Twilight Zone movie. Um, it's just a little too sentimental, I guess. Which there were sentimental episodes of the Twilight Zone, and that's fine. But I don't know. Just compared to the other ones, they at least seem like they have some sort of um, danger in them that this one just doesn't. I, f I feel like a much better ending to this one instead of it just kind of lingering and ending with, you know, the guy who didn't want to play with everyone else kicking the can in the front yard and uh, the magical black person going to the next giant group of white folks whose lives he has to fix. Um, I think Grumpy Dude should have chased Peter Pan Dude out the window and fell to his death. <laughs> Because yeah. what a what a twist ending that is! Just him being like, "No, I want to go with you. I want to go." I mean, that's a '70s ending, and this movie was made in the '80s. <laughs> I guess, <it's... laughs> especially this segment by Steven Spielberg. So. Yeah, the Steven Spielberg segment, which. But uh, I mean, listen, I think listen, not a lot of people say this, but fuck Steven Spielberg. Oh, all right. We're not getting into that. The, the point. <laughs> The point here is that I think they were trying to tap into various different versions of the Twilight Zone that existed, different yeah. types of episodes that they had, and this was a type of Twilight Zone episode where there was just this cool, magical, fun thing that happened, and everybody's lives were better for it. I, For me, I found this segment to be a little depressing in the area where all these kids are given a chance to relive their lives, and none of them are like yeah my life was awesome i want to do that again <laughs> all of them are like no i'd like i'd like to go back to being close to death so that i don't have to go through this again and it's did anybody else find that a little weird like yeah like the one guy is like i don't want to go to school again so i will choose not to like so whatever he whatever school was to him he's going to give up what 80 years of life to avoid going back to it <laughs> so what did some like teacher beat him with that caused him to be so scared to go back to school a hundred percent i'm going with peter pan yeah you're like i'm gonna start over again it'll be great now I, I can honestly say i don't know if i would choose to go through life again if it meant reliving childhood and high school i i'm not sure anything that's happened in my adult life has been worth going through that but um, I, I don't know. It depends on the scenario. Are you having to relive your childhood over again? Or are you just continuing on in time with all of your current memories and stuff? And yeah, doing all over? I think you're continuing on in current time. See, that I can do. 
Yeah, but can't, I had to relive my childhood over again, and and I had a relatively good childhood. Fuck no. But could you, at the age of like seventy five, eighty, like could you just leave as like a thirteen year old, and then have to? I mean, it, the, logistically, there are some very serious questions about how that works. Yeah. I mean, where do you go? Like, like when the one character jumps out the window, it's like, well, where is he? going to live like he's <laughs> once again that's a pretty thick Peter Pan reference I'm assuming he's going off to Never Neverland to fight pirates <laughs> uh, I think you're a little stuck on this Peter Pan reference especially because his behavior tell me, tell me that is not a Peter Pan reference I'm not uh, saying it's, I'm not saying it's not but I don't feel I, like he legitimately can I, can I just point out Never Neverland in, in the in the dialogue, they point out that his favorite actor was Errol Flynn. He's trying to imitate Robin Hood, not Peter Pan. You just think yeah. he's doing such a bad job of imitating Robin Hood that he's accidentally imitating Peter Pan instead. <laughs> he literally flies out of a window in a striped shirt. Like, literally. <laughs> yeah, but striped shirts were pretty common at the time. I'm just, I'm just saying... Anybody else think it was weird that he just chose not to wear the shirt that he like tied it around himself and left his chest exposed? Yeah, it's like a, it was like, like a twelve-year-old boy running around shirtless. It was like a cape. That's why he was flying. It's, I mean, it's obvious if you have a cape, you can fly. Okay. Yeah. I accept yeah. that. I win. I just thought he went out the window because earlier in the episode they made a reference to the fact that when he was a kid he got hurt by doing that same sort of thing. Yeah. No, that's how I took it too. I don't, yeah, I don't subscribe to Noah's that he's literally, literally going to Neverland, Never Neverland, and fighting pirates for the rest of his life. They show him fly away. You see him. He goes up, not down. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's worth noting, in case anybody listening hasn't watched the movie, I don't think this segment is meant to be set in the real world. I mean, it's set in a world where there are multiple retirement homes which are just big old homes with a single nurse that seems to live at them with the old people and there's like multiple of them within short walking distance to one another people check into these types of homes even though they show up by themselves just carrying a suitcase which seems weird to me it's like none of it feels like it's it's not it's certainly not 1980s united states of america where this is set is set in some obscure time some obscure place that's not really stated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I feel it's just sort of like an out of time sort of story. Yeah. So. It raises all sorts. Like because, I mean, anybody who was in their 70s, in the 80s, would have experienced a lot of weird shit in life, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they would have been alive throughout the invention. A lot of, like, gone from horse drawn carriage to cars, gone from no world wars to two world wars gone from you know sitting around reading a book by candlelight to watching television it's they would have experienced a lot and you know certainly the same could be said for people who are elder now and you know all of a sudden there's something called the internet they're probably very confused by the world they live in and it's not really clear a story whether these people have gone through all that or not and whether they would have had that same sort of confusion that old people naturally have by the world changing so much around them. Mm-hmm. So, how did we feel about this segment? It's the worst one. <laughs> See, I actually kind of enjoyed it a lot more now watching it. Like when I was a kid, this was the one where I was just like, 
what was the point of that? And I still don't really think there's a point to it. I, I don't think there's a clear message about whether people should go and try to be young again or not. Um, there or anything like that. I think it's, but I just find it's a fun little story. It passes whatever twenty minutes mm-hmm. nicely. I like the performance from Scatman. Yeah, I, I just yeah. I, so I I just enjoyed watching it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was how happy those little kids were to be playing made made me smile a little bit. <laughs> That's all. So yeah, I, like everyone's like, like you guys seem to have a problem with it, and I just, I guess, I just don't. I don't have a problem with that. I think it's just the one I like the least out of all of them. Um, it's, yeah, it's just the weakest. And but I do like all the actors in it. I think it's fun seeing these old actors get a chance to come back and do some fun stuff. Uh, Selma Diamond is in this segment, which makes it two segments in a row that somebody from Night Court has appeared. Oh, you're right. <laughs> Night Court really took over. I know. <clears throat> so if they needed a magical character, they should have got Harry Anderson. That's what Noah said. Oh yeah, that would have that would have done it. Well, well then it's too white, and now it's solid white. <laughs> so you guys, you guys, you guys just fix the racism by whitewashing it completely. <laughs> I think we need to do some adjustments there. Well, and I mean, I think that we're back into the racism debate again, but it's like... <laughs> Luckily, we don't have that the next one. If you had no black actors in this whole movie, people would say, well, that's racist. So they throw one in, and now you're like, well, that's racist because you put him in the wrong role. And it's like, well, well when I, when I pointed but, out that they, that actor they, is perfect for that role, you're like, that's not relevant to the discussion. But, but they, it's hard to not be racist. They literally, they literally put him in the one role of the story that is a trope, a racist trope. He could have played any one of the old people in the house. You still have the same actors, right? But they made him the star of it because he deserves to be because he's his performance is very strong. I'm, I'm not saying it isn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying it is... That it, it's it's the most mildest form of racism I think there is, but it is a racist trope. I mean, that's what it is. <laughs> Noah's just playing the racist advocate. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just say it. Don't get me wrong. I still enjoy it. I enjoy things that are far more racist than this. <laughs> Can you just edit that clip out and replay that over and over again for the entire episode, please, Brad? <laughs> Uh, I'll send it to you. It can be your ringtone. Uh, so should we move on to it's a good life? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that would stop. be the best ringtone for like a crowded elevator. I enjoy things far more racist than this. <laughs> just... What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> no, would just start calling you all the time, just in hopes that that would happen. We established last week that my phone would be on silent. So it doesn't matter. No, would hack into your phone and turn the turn the ring around. Okay, so It's a Good Life is the segment we're moving on to to avoid this conversation. Uh, <laughs> basically, young woman, I think it's said she's a teacher, pulls over to get directions, runs over a kid with her bike, or runs over a kid on his bike, sorry. Um, well, you forgot to mention that he gets roughed up by a football guy yeah. watching a boxing match. 
and the original kid from It's a Good Life is like, hey, man, you went overboard. Do you want to do the plot summary or do you want me to no, do No, no, no. I just I want to make sure we right. give a shout out to Bill Mummy, who was in the segment. You could have brought that up and not interrupted me, but right. whatever. Continue, continue <laughs> on. Anyway, so they go back to her house and everyone's scared of him and it turns out he's a monster because all his wishes can come true and when you let a child have that level of power, they wish for weird shit. <laughs> Which, of course, they do. Uh, at one point, he brings the Tasmanian Devil out of the TV because they think that's funny, but then they don't recreate the Tasmanian Devil very well. That's pretty much the whole story. Probably licensing issues. Yeah, probably. And Dick Miller makes a cameo. Yeah, he does. Because it's so exciting. 1980 something, so of course he's in it. <laughs> well, it's 1980-something, and this one was directed by Joe Dante, so yeah. makes perfect sense. So yeah, so this is a remake of the episode It's a Good Life, which just takes the core concept and completely sort of changes the idea. Yeah, I was going to go back and rewatch the episode, but I didn't get a chance. Mm-hmm. Did you know they did a sequel to the original episode in the Forrest Whitaker version of The Twilight Zone? No. So I'll take that as a no. I did not know that. I'm trying to remember the Forrest Whitaker version of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I don't remember any episodes except I remember Forrest Whitaker being the introductory. <laughs> uh, yeah, they did one where it turns out that his character has, and Cloris Leachman came back and Bill Mooney came back and it turns out he had a daughter and it, they discovered that she had the same power he did. So Cloris Leachman is trying to turn her against her father so they can finally get rid of him. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. That's a little weird. So, I, don't know how you, I don't know how you logistically take the, the character and make them grow up and get married and have a kid. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to rewatch it. Yeah. But he just wanted a baby. Yeah. Yes. A baby. But I guess we're talking about the movie version. Right. Uh... So I really liked this one. This is probably the one I remembered the most from when I watched it when I was younger up till I started, you know, got older and had rewatched it a couple times. Um, and I think just as a kid, just the idea of having this kind of power is, uh, I don't know if enticing is the right word, but it's just something that kind of makes your imagination go wild. That's probably why I enjoyed it so much. No, yeah, what about I can you? see that. Uh, it is bizarrely amazing. <laughs> okay. In weird ways. <laughs> it, it would be hard, I think, that if I was trying to, like, explain this shot for shot to somebody, they would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I'd be like, and then there's a picture with no faces in the, in the hallway. It looks like it's in black and white, but they're in color. And, and then there's a girl with no mouth, and then a guy takes a rabbit out of a hat. Because the boy tells him to, and then there's a giant evil rabbit in the hat, and then it goes away, and then he gets mad, and the TV cracks in half, and the Tasmanian devil comes out and starts howling at people and, and looking like a giant gremlin or uh, an unused prop from Freaked. They'd be like, no, drink bleach again. <laughs> right. Yeah, but what you just said is a very accurate description of it. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just a fun one. Just kind of, yeah. This you know, like like uh, Doug said in his description. Like, if you give that kind of power to a child who should not have that kind of power, like this is the kind of shit you end up with. And I don't believe 
the, the most unbelievable thing about this story is that the world survived that kid being three to five years old. <laughs> Not possible. Like a child that age is a complete sociopath, and if given the power of God, he would kill all life on Earth. <laughs> well, I think you're pointing out something inadvertently that I was going to bring up, which is there's a lot of weird problems with this segment. Like, such as, like, it's kind of a fun segment, but then mm -hmm. that girl with no mouth is creepy as shit and does not yeah. belong in a, in a fun, happy segment. Like, she belongs in a straightforward horror version of this story. And the, the weirdest part of this is, like, this kid who, like, his whole family is scared to death of him to, and does everything he says. But, like, when he's at the bar playing video games and like a grown adult comes over and knocks him down he just takes it like nothing and you're like well why didn't he just kill that guy at the beginning <laughs> like <laughs> if you're a small child and you get punched by an adult and you have the authority to hit back you would so it's sort of weird that way and uh, like I found this segment was just all about just throwing as much weird shit at you, at you mm -hmm. as they could which is fine because it's not a very long segment and it's just, you know, in an anthology film you can get away with having one segment that's this crazy. But it's also kind of expected because it's Joe Dante. Yeah. Hmm. But it's just for me it was sort of off putting how everything didn't feel like it was set like different scenes felt like they were set in different universes almost. The atmosphere was very inconsistent. Well, I mean that makes sense for his home life. Yeah, there were, and, and there are elements of that certainly where it's like you walk into certain rooms and it's like, oh, this room's a cartoon. Because one day he was sitting in here and wished he was in a cartoon. Hmm. I do agree. The the girl without the mouth, besides the, uh, the, if you want to see something really scary, like this probably creeped me out the most from when I saw it when I was younger. Just like she has no mouth. Why does she have no mouth? What does she do that he makes it, he made it so she didn't have a mouth? Oh, see, I like I had a sister growing up, so I didn't find that very far fetched <laughs> at all. Oh, that was more that was more of the part where I was like, "Oh, neat! I wish I could do that." <laughs> Some of us were not as evil as you, apparently, Doug. That's oh, fine. <laughs> You're really missing out, though. <laughs> oh, I had a sister too. I think I don't know. Probably helped I didn't live with her. So, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> Before we say something, before we find out that our families do listen to the podcast, because we get really nasty feedback from both of our moms next week. My mom would even, doesn't even know what a podcast is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just I enjoyed it. I think it's a lot of fun. The uh, I really like uh, what's his face uh, Kevin McCarthy, who plays the uncle in this, and I just love how just stressed stressed and burnout he looks. He really and, does throughout the whole thing. Like he's it's almost like because he's the uncle, you feel like he just came over one day and has been stuck there. Like he had no intentions <laughs> of living in this house. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting when she kind of the teacher comes in and they all take her stuff and as soon as they like leave the room, they start going through her purse and he finds like pictures of her at the beach and he's like, Oh, the beach. I used to love the beach. <laughs> I think the thing that messes me up about him is the movie that I always just instantly go to is UHF because <laughs> I'm me. Fair enough. Yeah. That, that's fair. And and so like 
I, I just can't see him in any movie and take him seriously. I guess I'm always just waiting for him to say, "You're be- we're getting beaten in the ratings by a goddamn UHF station! But you should just think, that's how evil this kid is, that that guy is scared of this kid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was the deal on the like teenage girl that was there? Did anybody figure that out? Was she supposed to be another sister, did they say? Well, none of them are related to him. They're all people that he has sucked in and trapped. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's because that felt sort of like uh, like the the near dark thing, where it's like the the kid like kidnapped a teenage girl to be his like to do whatever he had in his mind with. I don't want to know yeah. what. Yeah, because that's how like um, you were talking about when the guy pushes him at the uh, at the diner or whatever. Yeah. Um, the the teacher immediately comes to his aid. And I feel like when he saw that she was sort of on his side, that he devised this plan that, you know, I'm going to make it so she backs into me and has to take me home. And then I'll, you know, I'll make her stay with me just like everybody else because she actually likes me. And so I feel like he didn't want to ruin that plan, which is why he didn't, you know, make that guy melt into a puddle in front of him. That was some quick thinking for that kid, and some. That was like, we, I, I admit I've done this before, but you just were really just trying to justify the flaw. I pointed out in the film. You're just like, I don't want there to be a flaw, so I'm going to add all of this into the film, which is not there. Yeah, sure. Let's assume this is what was going on in that character's head during that one and a half seconds. Um, I do find it interesting that he eventually, because uh, they. It turns out that they leave a note in her purse like he's a monster, escape, or help yeah. us or whatever it said. And so he blames it on the sister and then banishes her to Cartoon Land, which I find very ironic since she does the voice of Bart Simpson. And so now she's been living forever in Cartoon Land. Yeah. See, the part I find ironic about that is that the Simpsons version of the story is one I prefer. <laughs> I would definitely rather watch that uh, Trios of Terror episode than this. Ouch. That's not necessarily a criticism. <laughs> but yeah, Just a compliment to the Simpsons episode. Yeah. Now, I, I will go ahead and say, like, uh, this is probably the weakest segment of the movie for me. Mm. Um, I feel like it was just too, too much just, here's a random thing, here's a random thing, here's a random thing, here's a random thing, and not enough of, here's a little story with a beginning middle and end kind of thing but dick miller yeah dick miller that's a good point i just think this is what you have to look forward to doug this is you're, <laughs> you're assuming that my child has some sort of evil powers yeah i will say this uh, this movie already had a negative impact on my life because when i was a kid my older brother put peanut butter on hamburgers and oh. I, assume, I assume he got it by watching this movie i can't imagine he thought it up on his own so yeah, I always thought that was gross. Yeah, yeah. You're if if you put peanut butter on a hamburger, you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> it's been decided. The midnight driving. If you put peanut butters on hamburgers, you're a monster. And I will go a step further to another fucking disgusting thing. If you put peanut butter in your chili, you're also a fucking monster. Who would do that? Tons of people. I have never heard of that. Tons of people, and it's fucking gross. I don't know what, or they dip, or they do put like peanut butter on toast and dip it in chili. It's fucking disgusting. 
I've never heard of that in my life. There's a chance we will get hate mail for me saying that because every time I tell somebody <laughs> I see doing it that it's disgusting, they're like, you know, we always do this. It's so good. Yeah, that sounds gross. I think you just live around really strange people. I live in the Midwest. It's literally where they test the weird flavored Doritos. <laughs> There's a reason for that. The weirdos in flyover country like it. Everybody else will like it. What's this bacon flavored soda? Why <laughs> would a four pack of that and then complain when it's gone in two weeks? <laughs> All right. So we move on. It's probably the most, I would argue, the most infamous episode of uh, the Twilight Zone ever. Yeah. And this is a remake of that. Right. It's, I mean, do we even need to do a plot description? Nightmare 20,000 feet. <laughs> Guy's on a plane. He's freaking out. Keeps saying that there's a gremlin out there. Turns out there really was. Um, mm-hmm. I fucking love this segment. This is mm-hmm. by far the best segment. Uh it's got a lot to do with Lithgow's performance. Oh, yeah. yeah. He goes so far fucking over the top. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. He's over the top, but he's wonderfully over the top. He's the perfect level of over the top for an 80s mm-hmm. version of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. it's this. <laughs> these are the types of performances that they needed in the 80s TV show of The Twilight Zone that they could <laughs> never get because TV budgets didn't allow for that back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I always really liked this one. Um, and I get in the makeup on the gremlins, fucking fantastic. Yeah, yep. gremlins really good. That I'm scene not, of them like face to face through the glass is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I guess this movie kind of introduced me to the Twilight Zone because I mean, I was probably six or seven when I saw it, so I hadn't seen any episodes. So I always. Sort of when I think of this, even though the episode, the actual episode is fantastic and obviously is way more famous, I just really like Lithgow in this. Just how crazy and over the top he gets. Uh, I don't remember. Did they play it up that he has a fear of flying in the episode? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember if they did or not, if that's something they added to this, but his complete and utter. Because it starts, it starts with him like crying in the bathroom okay. because of the storm shaking the plane. Yeah. Is that uh, is that from the original episode or is that added for this? Does anybody know? Well, that's what I was asking. If uh, I've, it, I've seen three hundred different versions of this story told, I cannot tell the part. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if, if he had a fear of flying in the original episode or not, um, or if that's just something they added to this to ratchet it up. But either way, Lithgow's performance and they never and they never really explain like why he's flying somewhere. Um, it's not necessary. No, definitely not. Just the fact that he's already. I mean, it starts with him and like we said in the bathroom crying because the plane's running into a, a storm. Like that's the perfect place to start. And his just he looks like he's just been through the ringer, <laughs> like yeah. before the the segment even starts, which is great. It's kind of like he goes through like the equivalent in this of just like starting off looking rough and just getting worse and worse and worse. It's similar to Vic Morrow's character in the first segment, except this is more just a mental breakdown rather than a physical. Yeah. 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 I was going to say, I think the other thing that really 
like puts this one over the top is the fucking camera work is kind of genius because it's all these really uh, tight close-up shots to make it seem more claustrophobic and instead of the camera pivoting like normal all of the camera movements are curves where it's like arcing instead of pivoting if that makes sense Mm-hmm. It's some something about it is so fucking off-putting, like it fucks with your sense of balance. I, I yeah, just like I agree. the The atmosphere in this film really kind of sucks you in, in this or in this segment, I should say. It really just you're in there with him, and mm-hmm. you're imagining what it would be like to be sitting on this plane, going through all this turbulence, and then the passenger next to you goes nuts, and. The only thing I think that it gets a little off is I think it's it would be almost better if the audience didn't know whether the gremlin was real and I think it feels really real right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But everything else about this is just it's so well made. Yeah. Um, I had read somewhere that Lithgow actually practiced like in the airline seat uh, and tried to coordinate with the, the lighting guys to have certain reactions like when the lightning struck and stuff and tried to time it out and then when they actually shot it the lightning guy kept going either early or late and kept like fucking up his rhythm and he got really like annoyed but then when he actually watched the movie he was actually really happy that that happened because it just added to his like frazzled just demeanor and everything and the fact that he was wasn't expecting some of the the lightning strikes and stuff. He felt like it really added to it. So it's just kind of fun how that can happen. Well, yeah, because it the way it comes across on screen, he's reacting. His, the timing's off a little bit on his reactions, mm-hmm. and I think that adds to the fact that he's not behaving rationally from the get go. I think yeah. that makes it kind of a, a more fun performance. So I didn't know that that was totally. accidental or whatever, but it's cool. Uh, we should mention, directed by George Miller. Yeah. Another fantastic director. Goddamn George Miller. <laughs> Always sneaking in and making genius shit when no one's paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Does do that. Uh, then taking a break and going to make fucking kids movies for no fucking reason. <laughs> Madness. Madness. His whole career is a fucking acid trip. Isn't it weird that like George Miller directs like Mad Max Fury Road and nobody dies, but John Landis tries to direct one segment of Twilight Zone the movie and three people die? Like, wouldn't you anticipate yeah. it being the other way around? Yeah, I mean, that movie had crazy stunts. It would seem like somebody would get hurt. I would get hurt if I tried to do those things. Anyways, it's not worth it. <laughs> Let's just crack the show and talk about George Miller for the next hour and a half. Babe picking the city? Don't, don't think I won't talk about Babe picking the city. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hmm. What about George Miller was a producer on Deadcom, which was a, movie, a different movie we talked about a while back that we, I think we all liked. Yeah. Good old Sam Neill and Billy Zane. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to assume we're all positive on this one. I think we've all said that this one was yeah, I, I, done super well and super fantastic. I think it, it 
for me, it's almost inarguable that it's the best segment of the movie. Yep. The only thing I don't, I don't love is that they tag on the, the like the ending, just tied back to the prologue. Oh. I don't, I don't love that they tie that in. I think that should be its own thing. But gotcha. it's all right. <clears throat> yeah. I'll tell you what. There, there is one unfair thing about this, though. So I have seen this story retold. I, I don't even know. This, this has been aimed over and over and over and over and over in a thousand different formats. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever seen a bad interpretation of this story. It's just a solid fucking story. <laughs> well, I think it's, yeah, if, you, if you're going to tell like a little short story, um, I think it works well because a lot of people can relate to that fear of flying and things like that. So. Hmm. Uh, so what did we think overall Twilight Zone the movie? Oh yeah, I liked it a lot. I I haven't seen it in a while and mm. sitting down to watch it. As I started remembering the segments, I'm like, oh, some of these aren't going to be scary. There aren't really any big twists that work. How's this going to go? And it turns out it goes just fine. Like it's all the episodes kind of play out as individual Twilight Zone episodes and just sitting down to watch four or five Twilight episode, Twilight Zone episodes in a row is a good way to spend your time. <laughs> uh, I'd recommend doing that as well as watching this movie. What about you, Noah? Uh, I, I like it a lot. I was sitting there uh, thinking while I was watching it, I was like, man, it's been a really, really long time since I watched this. I wonder why that is. This cast is so great and all this kind of stuff. And then the second segment started, and I was like, oh, yeah, see, this one's good, too. And then it got to the point where he was in uh, Asia or whatever, where he's in uh, Korea. And I was like, oh, yeah, they fucking killed Victoria. And then I was all sad for the rest of the time I was watching the movie. And that kind of, that threw a bit of a wrench in it. I don't think I was fully re-engaged until we got to the Lithgow section. Uh uh yeah i was super happy i just rewatched this a couple years ago so i was super happy to revisit it and uh definitely makes me want to go back and rewatch some uh twilight zone which uh i have the super duper box set which has the original series complete original series and then the complete 80 series and then i also because i bought it forever ago also have the complete 2002 series whenever it was out the Forrest Whitaker version right so I technically own all of the Twilight Zone at least the the video wise so I'm feeling like I need to go and rewatch some because I haven't haven't sat down to watch some Twilight Zone in a while that original series holds up really well yeah when it was available on Netflix I used to play a game where I would you know, instead of watching a movie, I would just find an episode of The Twilight Zone that I liked, and I'd play it, and then just let the next three or four just play, where I had no idea what was coming up. Mm-hmm. And I was never once disappointed. So. No, there, there was time. There was finally time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. Like, if I wish there was like a video service like Netflix where you could have like the, the Twilight Zone. And then you could just hit random and it would just pop up a random episode. That'd be fun. Yeah. That eighties version, I don't know how well that holds up. Um, I've only watched the first season. 
And I mean, it was hit or miss. There were some really good episodes. There were some really bad ones. Um, but I never got into the later seasons. So. Was it? Button Button was the one I really liked when I was a mm-hmm. kid. It just hit me. It's just one of those when the, sto- when the story played out, and I, I guess at a young age, I couldn't see the ending coming. And I, I remember mm. thinking, like, that was amazing. <clears throat> yeah, that one's really good. Uh, Amanda's a really big fan of that one. If I bring up Button Button, she's like, oh my God, I love that episode. Um, which Richard Kelly turned into the movie The Box, which was. I did not even bother watching. No, no, no. Um, uh, if you if you seen the college humor version of it, no, where the guy's explaining it, and he goes, "If you push this button, you will receive one million dollars, and someone somewhere that you don't know will." The guy's like, "Boom!" Hits the button. And I'm like, you didn't let me finish explaining. If you push the button, someone will die. And the guy goes, "Oh." Boom! And he hits the button. <laughs> and he's like, you just killed another person. He goes, cool, $2 million. And he goes, no, it doesn't work like that. You get $1 million. And he's like, and he's like reaching forward. He's like, don't push the button again. And the guy hits the button again. <laughs> What's funny is, um, like, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know how the movie, like, I kind of, I read about the plot and it sounds horrible. Uh, and then there's the 80s Twilight Zone version. And then uh, I've read the original short story by Richard Matheson. And it's funny because all three of them have the same idea, but none of them are exactly the same. Which I think is interesting. No. I'm trying to remember. I think I read the Matheson story a long time ago, too. Mm-hmm. Um can't remember how it played out. For some reason, I can remember a TV show I watched in the '80s, but I can't remember <laughs> the book I read like probably ten years ago. But well, it was like a high society couple, and then they were like they were broke, and then the wife pushes the button, and then the husband dies, and she's like, "But you said it'd be somebody I don't know," and he's like, "Did you really know your husband?" Because you know they didn't really spend time together. It was all all high society nonsense or whatever where it was just for the looks and there was no like actual emotion behind it okay that's a very Richard Matheson ending yeah I kind of preferred the ending from the TV show where yeah I mean that's kind of the first one I ever encountered so I always have a soft spot for that one um and then uh Richard Matheson actually came back and uh helped write the screenplays for the last three segments of the movie which I thought was cool. Yeah. So that dude has readapted that terror at twenty or nightmare at twenty thousand feet. I don't know how many times. They probably got him into the to do the Simpsons trio of terror when they were doing that show. So. <laughs> uh, what would Flanders say when it tried to claw his eyes? <laughs> Hang on, give me a minute. Uh, all right, so we head off to Hills from the Dark Side. Sure. Um, all right, so I'll take this one. Um, so Tales from the Dark Side adapted from the television show, Tales from the Dark Side. Weirdly enough, the show and the movie have a tie into the Creep Show franchise. Uh, after 
after Creepshow 2, um, was it the first one? I don't know, it doesn't matter. After one of the Creepshow movies, there was thoughts of, man, we should do like a Creepshow like TV series, sort of like The Twilight Zone. Um, but then for whatever reason, the rights or something, they couldn't use the Creepshow name, so they just came up with Tales from the Dark Side. Uh, George Romero was heavily involved with it from the start and then uh, had its run and then they decided well let's do a Tales from the Dark Side the movie and they pretty much got everybody who worked on the first two Creepshow movies to work on it and everybody just pretty much says this is pretty much Creepshow 3 even though it's not yeah even though there's no actual kind of connection yeah so, movie opens, uh, as Doug mentioned before. We have this little wraparound story. Uh, turns out Debbie Harry is a witch, and she has the middle Lawrence brother chained up in her pantry. And she keeps feeding him cookies, and she's going to invite, I assume, a bunch of other witches over, and they're going to cook them and eat them. So it's a good uh, heartwarming uh, kids movie right from the start. Uh, she uh, apparently gave him a book to read to help him pass his time while he's been chained up. Uh, funnily enough, the title of the book is Tales from the Dark Side. Wah, wah. And uh, he said it. He said that title. <laughs> and to uh, sort of delay her from cooking him. He starts telling her stories from the book, the ones that he really liked. And uh, that's le- that leads us into our segments. And then we uh, come back after each one of him still distracting her. Very much an Arabian Nights kind of uh, setup. Where he just keeps going on and on, trying to keep something from happening. Uh, so the first segment, Lot 249, this ties into... Slater September. Uh, apparently, this is based on an Ar- Arthur Conan Doyle story. And so it turns out this uh, graduate student, played by Steve Buscemi, uh, he's like super poor and had to like work really hard to get through school. And he has to go to school with all these rich assholes who give him a hard time. And so it turns out he got cheated out of some fellowship which would have given him a lot of money to study abroad or do something. I couldn't remember what the fellowship money yeah. was for. But. I think it was basically for traveling to Europe and traveling for the summer. And he was yeah. going to use that because he collected antiques and stuff. So he was going to use that as an opportunity to gather up objects. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have Andy played by Christian Slater who lives in the same apartment building. So... I couldn't tell. Like it seems like Andy comes from a somewhat well-to-do family, but he's not nearly as stuck up as like most of the other people that they go to school with. So yeah, that's so- how it felt. Yeah, so he's sort of the in-betweener. Uh, his best friend is like a huge dick to uh, Steve Buscemi all the time, and then it turns out uh, Andy's sister, played by Julianne Moore in her big-screen debut. Uh, basically cheated out cheated him out of this fellowship to get it for the other guy whose only intention for the fellow for the fellowship grant is that he's going to paris already 
So he wants to buy a Maserati while he's over there. Yeah. Because rich people suck. Uh, turns out uh, Steve Buscemi buys a lot, hence the name Lot 249, which is a sarcophagus with a mummy in it. Uh, and he uh, reawakens the mummy to enact revenge on all these rich assholes. And uh, the mummy starts wreaking havoc. So what does everybody think of Lot 249? Uh, I'm a big fan of retellings of the the Gollum Gollum myth. And that's pretty much what this is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or Golem, I should say. I always mispronounce it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an original story by any stretch of the imagination. It plays out pretty much exactly how you'd expect it to play out. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with one exception. That Steve Buscemi's in it? What? No. Where <laughs> Christian Slater goes all fucking Axel on the fucking mummy. <laughs> I, I hadn't watched that. this one in a while. I forgot about that part. And I was like, oh yeah, he fucking he fucks this mummy up. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, though, because it's playing on like the jokes about the mummy that would have existed around this time. Like, where it's like it's a mummy it moves really slow like how hard can it be to fight off a mummy and christian slater proves that all you really need is one of those electric fucking knives that people use for carving up turkeys (laughs) and you can just take one out no problem (laughs) yeah the mummy only kills the best friend and then andy's sister yeah and he does it in pretty horrific ways which is awesome Um, he he repeats the embalming procedures that were used on him Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that uh, Steve Buscemi lays out for us when they're talking about it. Um, so yeah, the the best friend gets a coat hanger up the nose, rips his brain out, and Super then uh, yeah, and then Julianne Moore gets uh, sliced open in the back with a pair of scissors and flowers stuffed into it. Now, obviously, this movie was uh, the script must have been written in the the 80s because uh, why else would there be a scene where the mummy lays out the brain on a plate with like <laughs> fruit and shit oh it's fucking awesome yeah this segment is really good I mean all that, all those those kills are really fun to watch mm-hmm. and then a lot of this is just like Steve Buscemi and Christian Slater like Buscemi's acting like a creepy weirdo and Christian Slater's looking at him like what the fuck is wrong with this guy and then later it's Christian Slater acting like a creepy weirdo and Buscemi looking at him like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? And the whole time I'm thinking, I wonder if either of these guys is acting at all because it seems like this is just what would happen if you put these two guys in a room, but I don't care. It's great to watch. I kind of like the double twist ending. Fun. The fact that, you know, Christian Slater just easily takes out the mummy and seems to outplay Steve Buscemi very, very well. And then, of course, in the end, you find out that probably should have paid attention in hieroglyphics class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know, I don't know if I was caught off guard by the twist by any stretch of the imagination, but it was fun to watch it happen. Yeah, it is interesting like we were talking about just sort of the jokes of fighting a mummy that if you think about it, the only reason he killed those two people is cuz he kind of snuck up on them. Like they turn around and there's a mummy and it grabs them and then shoves a coat hanger up their nose or stabs them with scissors. Whereas Christian Slater is just like, yeah, I got this electric knife oh look he's moving okay i'll just cut his leg off I mean, it's pretty much just downhill from there. 
And at one point, Christian Slater cuts his arm off, then picks it up and realizes that because he'd previously cut fingers off, it looks like the mummy is flipping people off. And he thinks that's pretty funny, and so do I. <laughs> like he's like he's literally like doing like the look into the camera, like hey, 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 pointing at the hand that's just giving the middle finger. And I'm like chuckling under my breath, going, "I wish I was mature enough that that wasn't funny to me, but yeah. it's awesome." Yeah, I just think it's fun because I mean, for most of the segment, Christian Slater is actually kind of defending Steve Buscemi. Like, yeah, he keeps, telling, he keeps telling his friend like to knock it off and telling his sister that she shouldn't be messing with him and stuff. But he doesn't really go out of his way to like help him, right? Whereas he could he could just tell him like, "Hey, my sister fucked you over," so you could go tell the dean or whatever. Uh, but then, like after after his sister and his best friend die, he's just like, "Oh no, fuck this." And just goes completely crazy. The scene, you know, yeah. he's got Steve Buscemi tied up to the chair. And he's like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm going to set all this shit on fire and roast your nuts. <laughs> I'm just like, this is fantastic. This is just full Christian Slater just being yeah. crazy. I love when he broke the fingers off the mummy and threw them on top of Steve Buscemi's lap like they're kindling. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it's it's super fun to watch it all happen i think it is kind of interesting that christian slater's character was just kind of on the fence the whole time like i don't want to betray my sister and my best friend but they shouldn't be behaving this way and then when he has them killed it's like well now you made yourself into the bad guy by committing so many murders <laughs> when you've raised that guy from the dead and sent him out to kill people you really crossed a red line with me sir <laughs> Uh, it's just such a fun segment, a great way to kick off this anthology. It really is. Like it's the kind of thing that it's like it's just super fun to watch, and it, there's nothing like, like I've said, nothing greatly original about it. They're not the best kills ever, but they're fun and they're unique by sort of slasher standards. You're not going to see this happen all the time. So, I would say they're they're especially good mummy kills. Because mummy movies just tend to be a mummy strangling people to death. Yeah. That's true. Like, mummy movies tend to stand in the category of things that I just don't bother to watch, so. They, they, they also have a bad tendency of getting all friended fraisery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, just really enjoy this one. Of course, it wraps up with Christian Slater destroying the wrong scroll, as Noah pointed out. And if Christian Slater lets him off light. He lets him just leave school. He's sort of like, just get out of here. Your mummy's dead. Don't ever come back. But, of course, Steve Buscemi kept the original scroll and sends his dead sister and dead best friend after him. It's a fun ending, too. Yeah, uh, and it just it just cuts away, cuts away with the, just that scene of the two new mummies just standing at the door. <laughs> the only thing I'm not sure I loved is that the two new mummies could talk, but whatever. Yeah. Well, they're fresh. Yeah, yeah. Logically, you can easily explain it away. It's just would it have been more scary if they hadn't talked? Probably, but that's yeah. not what the film was going for, I guess. I mean, that one dude doesn't have a brain anymore, so. Unless the mortician put it back in, but that doesn't seem likely. I don't think they would do that. 
The guy doesn't have his head cut open, but we're going to cut it open to stuff the brain back <laughs> in that came through his nose. Yeah, they could have just shoved a funnel up his nostril and kind of just <laughs> jammed it back Pour in. There. Right in. <laughs> uh. I mean, I, this is where I just have to admit my knowledge of pathology is minimal, so I don't actually know how all that works. Yeah, me neither. But I guess on to another segment, which makes just about as much sense. Uh, this is called A Cat from Hell. Stars the ever-awesome uh, William Hickey, who I'm a big fan of. Um, and David Johansson. Uh, so William Hickey lives in this old mansion and uh, with his sister and his sister's best friend and their butler slash driver. I don't know what the relationship with that guy is. They refer to him as a hired man. I don't yeah. know. I don't know what that means. It sounds like man whore to me, but I don't think that's how it was intended. Yeah, probably not. He tends the house. <laughs> uh, so this black cat starts showing up. Uh, the William Hickey character keeps trying to get rid of it, um, and of course, the cat causes the death of his best friend's sister by tripping her, knocking her down the stairs. And then uh, hilariously suffocating his sister in her bedroom. Uh, and then when he has the hired man uh, take it to the shelter to have it euthanized, it, uh, of course, escapes the basket that it's in and causes him to wreck the car, which then catches on fire. And now the cat has been stalking him around his mansion, so he's hired a hitman to come in and take care of it. And uh, the assumption on their part is because he he uh, owns a giant pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company, and they killed like five thousand cats while testing a new drug. He says it's something specific about the feline nervous system they needed to test on cats. Uh, so he's convinced this cat has come to seek its revenge. So the hitman's left in this mansion by himself with his cat and finds out that the old man isn't crazy. There is something supernatural about this cat and he can't kill it and it ends up crawling through his mouth, down his throat, into his stomach. Which is messed up. After after it attacks his dick. Yeah, after it yeah, claws his dick up a, a couple times. <laughs> uh, based on a Stephen King short story of the same name. So of course I my King Nerd uh was is always super excited about rewatching this one. The the special effect of the cat climbing in and out of the guy's mouth is fucking awesome. But besides <laughs> besides that, that cat attacking his dick in the fucking reaction, the reaction shot of him going, <laughs> <laughs> but tell me that's how you that's not how you would react. Oh, that's exactly how any human being would react. It's one of the reasons why it's so funny. But I mean it's funny to the point that it made my fucking insides hurt and I had to pause the movie for a minute. <laughs> to, like, <laughs> to let myself catch back up because I was I was like, I'm gonna miss this whole fucking rest of this thing it's screaming out this cat's ass claw is a dick. <laughs> Uh, so what'd you think of it, Doug? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yeah. Once the hitman is alone in the house, yeah, 
and him and that cat are doing battle for like an entire day and he's going through all the different traps and he just can't quite pull it off and then the cat's attacking him and biting his dick and like <laughs> it starts by like giving him a cut on the back and he's mostly just pissed it's ruining his shirt and stuff like that and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse that's all super fun i i do find that <laughs> that beginning part where we're getting the stories about how the other people died yeah that dragged on a little long like I was like during that I was like oh god like it's gonna get better right. Well, <laughs> Luckily see, I'm, it all, did. I'm all right with it just because of Hickey narrating it and he's awesome. <laughs> I like his performance, but I feel like it contradicts. Like it's almost like he's telling a very serious story, but then what we're seeing on screen isn't very serious because <laughs> that cat suffocating that lady is just ludicrous. Yeah. Specifically, the librarian from Ghostbusters. Yes. Yeah, that <laughs> I think the effects for like that specific part does not hold up too well, but I do enjoy the other, like Noah said, of the cat jumps into his mouth and then climbs down his throat. Yeah. That stuff's pretty cool. I feel like, yeah, like somebody read this screenplay and was like, well, I know which part we have to spend our time on and which parts <laughs> we just have to get through. And they were certainly, they wanted that shot of that cat coming back out of his mouth when the old guy comes home. And that's, they got it. And it, it's like as good as you could imagine it being, really. Oh, see, I thought you were going for the dick attack. <laughs> you always go for the dick attack. I mean, I love that it's it's also in the part where he's taking a break from hunting the cat, and he's just like playing pool. The cat comes running out of nowhere, and just goes straight for his dick. <laughs> it's so funny. Uh oh, some things uh that we, I don't think, noticed. Apparently, Dawn of the Dead was playing on the TV when uh, in Lot 249. Okay. Shemi's apartment. And then on this one, uh, when he's setting up the, the food in front of the TV, he's going to shoot him. Apparently, Martin is playing on the TV. Oh. That's kind of awesome. So, yeah. Because so, Romero wrote the screenplay for this segment, right? Correct. He wrote it, intended to use it in Creepshow 3, which then never happened. Okay. And then when they made this movie, they just kind of dusted it off and used it, which he was kind of surprised by, but... Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed this one. Yeah, like I said, like, like I said, the cat battle is kind of fun. Just them going back and forth throughout the mansion. Cat battle. It, it reminds me a little bit of, like, Jaws. Where they kind of, where they're just like, like this hitman is just basically not everything is sharks, Doug. <laughs> just try hard enough, um, but yeah, like he's just kind of on this mission trying to find it, and then every now and again, it, the cat just shows up, and every time he's like, "This is my chance to kill it," and just can't, and then the next time it can't, and the next time it bites him in the dick, the next time it kills him. Yeah, I always felt. Like, I, I never was, like, scared of it, but I'm just like, man. Sometimes I just look at a cat and be like, I wonder if that cat would jump in my mouth and try to crawl down my throat. That'd be if fucked it up. could? Yeah. Oh, I, I do think cats, uh, many cats are evil. Not all. <laughs> I don't want to generalize, but it's... Yeah, don't be racist, Yeah, man. like, I don't think that's what that word means. But, um... <laughs> well, the other thing is... Don't, don't be species. I, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't even know what point I was trying to make anymore. You guys keep interrupting. <laughs> Doug's over our bullshit. 
<laughs> Doug's like, in conclusion, sharks are awesome. <laughs> sharks are awesome. All right. Well, if you think of it, just jump back out. No, I'm good. All right. <laughs> it's fine. We'll move on to the next segment, Lover's Vow, which is based on a on the Yuki Ona or spirit in Japanese folklore. Apparently, this is based on like a Japanese like folklore type story. Yeah. Um, so this artist played by James Remar, who people nowadays will probably know as Dexter's dad from Dexter. Um, he's an artist who's having sort of uh, some problems. He's broke. He uh, is having a fight with his agent who drops him. Um, just all around bad time. So he goes to drink it off at a bar. Bar closes. Uh, him and the bartender go out the back door. He takes a piss in the alley. And while he's doing this, a giant gargoyle thing drops out of the sky and beheads the bartender. And so he pleads with the gargoyle thing not to kill him. And he tells him it won't as long as he never tells anybody about their encounter. To which he agrees runs off, runs around the corner, immediately runs into Radon Chong. Um, she basically, he basically tells her she's not safe, takes him back to his apartment. Uh, they have some sexy time. And then it jumps ahead 10 years, and they are married. So I think they're married. Yeah, married. I don't know. Uh, they at least have kids. He's a very... Uh, respected and wealthy artist and they go out for their 10th anniversary and then he makes the mistake of telling her all about that fateful night and turns out Radon Chong is the gargoyle and does a pretty awesome transformation scene and uh, tells him he has to die because he broke the vow and then kills him and then flies off with their children who have also regressed to gargoyle-esque beings and then turns into stone on a rooftop. This is probably my least favorite segment of this. Really? Anthology. Yeah. Oh, easily my least favorite. Yeah. Abs- absolutely my favorite. Really? Absolutely. Uh, this has always been my least favorite. Man, it's, it's gory. It's got a crazy-looking fucking monster in it. Yeah. Uh, the ending's, pr- I think the ending's predictable, but, like, the way it plays out's really good. It's, like, a solid fucking story. I don't know. I, I just like everything about it. I love Remar. See, I don't know. I-, I don't love Remar's performance, and I find the character is hard to... At the beginning, he's so whiny, and then, even though he's supposed to, like, become this, like, become more successful and take on a wife and become this like family guy like we don't because it's told in these like little like two minute segments we don't really get to know the character so it's like who cares when he ruins his life you know what I mean? by like betraying his vow or whatever I find that yeah it doesn't it doesn't really work for me the monster's kind of neat looking yeah the monster's neat looking I think the transformation scene's kind of cool but like the rest of it I just yeah, I just didn't really care about the story part. It's it's not that there's not potential for an interesting story. I just didn't care about it while it was happening. I, I think I'm I'm just I'm a sucker for a monster. I don't get enough monsters. 
I don't disagree. It is a good monster. It's a good monster. Uh, I was going to say monster story, but again, that's the part that I have the problem with, I guess. But you know, the transformation's cool. The monster's cool. Just everything else, I'm kind of yeah. meh on. I really, yeah, I really just didn't get into the story at the end of the day. And so, like, that supposed, like, twist, like, twists can work even when you see them coming, I think. And in this case, it's just, like, it's, it's not that I, not that I'm surprised or that I think it's a bad twist. It's that I just don't care. However, Ray Tan Chung, so mm. pretty much means I like everything. She's, like, it's, I, I can't criticize anything with her in it, so it's perfect. We should all recommend Commando again. <laughs> and they get a little bit of nudity in there. He's in a little titty. I found that sex scene really awkward too, though. Anybody else? Like, it's just that. I guess it's just that early '90s, late '80s well, sex scene where you just like, it just feels like they're shooting a music video of two people having sex in the middle of it. Plus, plus, so Remar's awesome, good actor. I like him in a lot of stuff. He's he's not sexy. He's not a sexy person. Like, I don't, I don't need to see him having sexy time with anybody ever. Anything. You obviously, I mean, you don't find him sexy in uh, cruising. Come on. Oh, no. Never speak of never speak of cruising and sexy in the same sentence ever. <laughs> All that having been said, too, that whole sequence is really weird. Like he brings her back to the room. It feels very one night standy the way that they hook up. And the fact that we're supposed to care that they get together is like, no, they probably wouldn't. I I love the thing that the whole thing plays out a little rapey. You know, it's not, he he wasn't trying to rape her, obviously, but like, you know, it comes off a little rapey. And then later on in the story, whenever they're like, tell tell the story about when mom met dad or whatever, and the other kids are like, you made the night, you thought he was going to rape you? That was a weird fucking line to have a child say in a movie, right? Uh, I was, I don't know. There's something about if you're if you're gonna do classless horror, I'm I'm cool with it. That's an awesome line. <laughs> Certainly, it was yeah, like an exploitation type line, but it was weird. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And something about the end where basically the monster and the guy are still telling each other that they love each other as as the monster is getting ready to like, rip his fucking throat out. I don't know. It's fucking awesome. I don't, I don't know why you guys don't like it. Yeah, I don't know. I think, if, yeah, like, I think if this, this one almost needed to be told over a longer period of time so you could buy into the relationship between the two of them to make that ending have some kind of impact. Mm-hmm. So that might be true, but at the same time, the, all the stuff in between, I, I don't know how you would work in any horror. So it would be horror at the beginning and horror at the end with a 35-minute love story in the middle. Yeah. I don't either. I don't know how you expand that story, but I don't know. Yeah, I think I think you'd have to make it not a not a horror story. You'd find a way to make this into like a romantic story. It just happened to have a monster in it. Yeah, and not be in a Tales from the Dark Side movie. I, I feel like right. that would reduce the gore and the awesome monster. And I don't want that. Or an awesome monster. Alright, I think we just agree to disagree on this one. And a booby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, the fact you still call it a booby makes it hilarious. Well, that's that's because whenever I say a booby, everybody knows that I'm joking and it's nudity and that's funny and awesome. But if I were to go, it's a titty, then all of a sudden everybody's like, ooh. <laughs> no. Nobody would be surprised by you sounding creepy and weird. Just so we're clear. <laughs> we're like on episode 48 of this podcast. There's no way that anybody's surprised by that anymore. I don't think I'm creepy. <laughs> Nah, you're fine. Oh, god damn it. Someone scared me on Facebook. Stop they, looking at Facebook when you're podcasting. They just put up a picture of this, and I was scrolling through it, and I saw R.I.P., and I saw Tom Selleck in it. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I realized it's a joke. They put R.I.P. Burt Reynolds with a picture of Tom Selleck. But I'm like, we can't lose Burt Reynolds and Tom Selleck in the same day. Who the fuck? He Didn't he just die today? Yeah. Why are people already fucking making jokes about somebody dying? Because the internet's a horrible place. That's why our podcast is on it. That's <laughs> um, not the end of the show, though. Been a great one, line. <laughs> uh, so that takes us to the end of the wraparound, where Betty tells Timmy that, "Hey, you know, you've read me all these stories, but guess what? Time to get in the oven." And. Uh, He's like, no, no, I still got one more. And then basically narrates the exact stuff he's going to do to escape this dungeon that he's stuck in. And uh, it he pretty much just home loans it by throwing some marbles on the floor. <laughs> she uh, slips on him and then lands on the butcher block, which has a bunch of, like, uh, needles or something. Uh, sewing needles for uh, sewing him back up after she... Yeah. Those, those are called... Uh... Uh, barding needles. Okay. Okay. Then she falls on the barding needles um, while she's like trying to get them out of her back. He's able to grab the keys, escape, and then pushes her in the oven, Hansel and Gretel style, and then uh, grabs a cookie, looks directly into the camera, and says, Don't you just love happy endings? And that's roll credits. So how did we feel about uh, Debbie Harry versus uh, Lawrence, brother? Uh, I liked it. It's a good wraparound. I personally would rather it have ended with the kid getting cooked. And, like, it ends with, like, kid on a table like a pig with an apple in his mouth. And all of those townspeople that you saw at the beginning showing up to eat the kid. So they were all in on it the entire time. Yeah, that would be another ending. I mean, it was pretty obvious in the beginning they were doing the Hansel and Gretel thing. Or just the Hansel part, I guess. But mm. it was... Yeah, it's fun. It's relatively well executed. I could do without the the fourth wall break. That was just a little <laughs> much for me. But, you know, you take what you can get. Doug's just like, you ruined it! You sons of bitches! Breaks the TV. I would never do that to my TV. I love my TV too much. Now that you have a VCR, did you get like an old shitty tube TV to hook up to it? No. Oh. We'll see. Not- my old tube TV is still in my parents' house because the first like time I had enough money to buy a real TV, it was like a 36-inch or something, which was considered big at the time. And it's really heavy. So it's just still in my old room because I'm never taking it out. It's, it's get, get, getting dismantled in that room if, it ever, if they ever move. <laughs> I was just curious if you wanted the whole VHS experience or if that mattered. No. 
there are people that I'm friends with that have like retro video games and they purposely go buy like old TVs to hook up to it just so they can get the entire experience because they're weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> so IR got a CRT TV. Yep, there you go. <laughs> like I just said. The light guns don't work with new TVs. If you want to play duck hunt shit, you gotta have an old school TV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's fun. Um, so how do we feel? Tales from the Dark Side of the movie overall. What do you think, Doug? Um, overall, I liked it. Like I said, I think the wraparound story is fun. I like that that element. Uh, the, the biggest problem with it is that I think the stories get progressively worse. Like it's the best one, then the middle one, then the worst one, and. I do think there's quite a drop in quality from the best one to the worst one. So I don't know how you would do that, whether you would want to put the best one at the end or what you would want to do, but it's it's a really noticeable change in quality from the three different stories. So that's a bit of a problem. But again, they're relatively short segments, so if you don't like one, you know, wait a couple minutes and the next one will start up. Which is yeah, the apologies. I was surprised I didn't remember the segments being so short, but they move along really quickly. I, both of these movies, when I put them in, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to set aside like two and a half hours because I know there's like how many stories there are and I have a vague recollection of what goes on in the stories. And it's like, no, they really compress them for time. And it doesn't take that long to get through them at all. What about you, Doug? Or Noah? Uh, I actually like Tales from the Dark Side more than Twilight Zone. Crazy. Uh, well, there's a, there's a couple pretty simple reasons for that. Number one, I are like blood and guts, and Tales mm-hmm. from the Dark Side has blood and guts that Twilight Zone doesn't really have. Sure. Uh, and boob. <laughs> boob. I mean, <laughs> I mean, both your arguments are that. valid. Yeah. Uh, plus, well, one thing. Twilight Zone has is uh, it's it's got an equal monster ratio. Because <laughs> we have Dan Aykroyd monster and uh, and Gremlin monster. Mm-hmm. And we got Tasmanian Devil, Tasmanian Devil monster, and uh, fucking Rabbit monster. Do those count? What was both of that they, giant? I, eye? They kind of do. Was the giant eye a monster? I don't, I don't know. Just kind of a giant eye. Weirdly enough, I read they reused that stock footage of that giant eye in the opening credits for the new version of The Outer Limits when it was on. Oh. Yeah, that makes sense. But, like I said, that's that's pretty much it. The, uh, I think the only reason why I like it more is I like I like the extra bits of uh, violence. Yeah. And that's that, that. That is fair. I mean, Twilight Zone is obviously intended for a, a certain audience, and Tales from the Dark Side is intended for a slightly different audience. Um, we all kind of fit into both of those audiences, but mm-hmm. maybe if your leanings are more towards one or the other, you'll feel strongly about it. Yeah. Plus, Steve Buscemi. Yeah, Steve Buscemi and our, uh, of course. Uh, guest of honor for the month, uh, Christian Slater battling it out. That's always a plus. Both of these movies, the casting is great. I think I think I've decided that Christian Slater is a cross between uh, 
uh, Jack Nicholson and William Shatner. Like, he has, it's Jack Nicholson's voice with randomly punctuated words for no reason. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, fair. Yeah, I hate to admit it, but he's kind of right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, big recommends on uh, both movies. <clears throat> Got some good ones in. Thanks for calling the Midnight Drive-In. No one is here to take your call. For more info, check out the Midnight Drive-In on Twitter at Pod or find us on Facebook. If you want to email us, send it to themidnightdrivein at gmail.com. Remember, no outside food and drink. Anyone caught performing sexual acts at the drive-in will immediately be taken to the office. Unspeakable things will be done to you. Thanks for calling. Has anybody watched anything since last week? Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, I did watch a Vault of Horror after watching these two. Nice. Because you know I can't watch a, <laughs> a movie theme and not continue on that theme. Well, weirdly enough, I also watched two anthologies this this week. So, yeah, it was funny because I was gonna watch, I was gonna rewatch uh, Creepshow, but then I was like, you know what? I've watched Creepshow a million times. I should probably do something else. So I was gonna rewatch Trilogy of Terror, but I've seen Trilogy of Terror about a thousand times too. So I was like, no. <laughs> to do something else. So, Vault of Horror was one of the few that I haven't watched a billion times. Uh, and either either I've never watched all of it before, mm-hmm. or it's just been a really, really fucking long time since I've watched it, because I did not remember three quarters of that fucking movie easily. <laughs> uh, I remember the opening story being really good. Was it the guy that dies and then comes back? It's sort of like a POV shot. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Uh, trying to remember which one was the first one because there's like five. Because mm-hmm. there's the super neat guy who's always yelling at his wife for not keeping everything perfectly organized, and then she busts him in the head with a hammer. There is the guy who goes to the voodoo priest that gets the power to uh, basically voodoo doll people with paintings. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the story with the vampire, which is really weird. <laughs> a guy goes to a town and everything shuts down at sundown and he keeps trying to figure out why. It's like, <laughs> for watching it from the outside, it's like, you know this town's full of vampires, right? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, come on, guy. And finally, he finds a restaurant that's open all night, and he goes in, and they're like, ah, you know, it comes with a glass of juice and soup and uh, a roast dish and all this kind of stuff. And he's sitting there, and they bring, first they bring out his juice, which is clearly blood, and he's drinking it, and he's like, tastes funny. <laughs> and finally the waiter comes up and he just kind of like waves it off and the guy takes the juice and brings the soup and then he's drinking the soup also clearly blood <laughs> and he's like this soup tastes weird and the waiter's like oh well what can I could, how would you like your clock cooked he goes would you medium rare rare and he's like 
the what? And he's like, the clot. And he's like, what? And he's like, blood clots. Roasted blood clots. The guy's like, what in the sweet shit? And then, of course, they pull back the curtains and everybody vampire. They eat him. That just sounds pretty good. I don't think I've ever seen Vault of Terror. It's alright. The, the weirdest part of that entire shot is it pans across the room and while everybody's like a little extra pasty to show that they're vampires, most of it, like, there are no vampires with like vampire teeth. It's the one smart thing they did. It's just not going full. But as they're panning through the room, there's a one dude who has vampire teeth. And they're like giant buck-toothed walrus vampires. Only one guy. <laughs> one guy with these two girls, like, like if you talk to this kind of fucking vampire tooth thing. It, it's just, I, I, something about that is so fucking entertaining and stupid that I really fucking dig it. <laughs> and then, of course, there's another one where a guy basically takes uh, Detro to Toxin to fake his own death, and his buddy's supposed to come dig him up. And they're going to basically collect on his own insurance. They get rich quick. But the friend abandons him. And instead, these two college kids that need a dead body to practice on, apparently, are going to dig him up to steal his body. But when they dig him up, of course, he sits up and goes, ah! And the guy who they paid to dig him up freaks out and beats him over the head with a shovel and kills him. That sounds like it serves everybody right in that scenario. Yeah, well, yeah it all works out pretty good. It's very... Uh, Vault, Vault of Horror is very much just British uh, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Like, the the very, very first Tales from the Crypt. You know, That's what I've heard. Yeah. I was going to say, the story I was thinking of is actually one of the segments from Tales from the Crypt, the original one. So Yeah, but it was, it was solid. I mean, it was solid in that uh, it's like 1970s horror. But I feel like you forgot the one with Tom Baker as the painter. No, I said the the, the painter, right? The the oh, painter. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. In which that I mean that that whole segment's fucking solid because it's like a really really cool different way of doing a voodoo doll story. And I feel like you don't get that very often. I mean, it's like that one was really solid, and maybe the one from like Tales from the Hood. With the uh, the kid with the monster pictures, but yeah, so it's it's solid. If you like uh, if you like nineteen seventy stuff, I check it out. Yeah, you can, I think I'm gonna have to watch that one because you can get this. I've never seen it. You get this one on a double feature uh, Blu Ray. Yeah, Blu Ray with uh, the original Tales from the Crypt. Ooh, yeah, let's see that solid. Yeah, and the wraparound, the wraparound on it is very much like you know, because the original Tales from the Crypt is a bunch of people in a crypt telling mm -hmm. stories, and then of course at the end you're like, oh, they're they're ghosts that live in the crypt, and <laughs> and this one, the exact same fucking thing. It's a bunch of guys get on an elevator together, and they all hit the ground button, but they go to like sub basement two, which is a weird conference room. But in the end, you find out that they're all ghosts and their punishment for the horrible things that they did while they were alive is to have to basically relive it over and over. Mm. Yeah, that's good. And that was pretty much it. I was going to watch something else, but I never had time. 
What about you, Doug? Uh, I don't have a lot. First thing I did was oh, I needed a, a palate cleanser after last week. <laughs> so I, I'm just like, I need a good superhero movie because of what I, what I went through. Mm. Uh, so, I, thought you were, I thought you were talking about how I made you watch Airborne. So I, I, I was going to be like, so I needed to watch a good rollerblade movie. <laughs> oh, see, I figured he was going to go, so I want to watch a Serbian film, like the completely other side of the spectrum. <laughs> a whole different kind of fanfic. Yeah. No, but I watched Winter Soldier to make up for yeah. the shitty superhero movies. So in oh, case you guys were worried, it's still awesome. Yeah, I need to rewatch it's, it. It really is just a great movie. It doesn't matter that it's a superhero movie. Like, yeah. You could easily take a lot of those characters out of their costumes and just still have the same movie, and it would, it would be great. Yeah, I still love like that elevator scene. Yep. Where he's figuring out what's going on, but they don't seem to realize right away that he's figured it out, and he still is just all right. Does anybody want to get off before this happens? I love that line. <laughs> it, it is to date still the best uh, Marvel Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think some people don't give it the credit it deserves because it doesn't have the same like emotional impact of the like say the adventure movies um, because it's not a culmination of all these things that came before it. But it's a great movie, and it could just be a standalone movie. And if you don't like the universe, you could just watch it, and you'd be fine. Which is, you know, compare that to say like Infinity War, which has this huge emotional impact but relies very heavily on you being invested in those characters before you come into the theater. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like objectively, the best in this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far. Yeah, I, hard to argue that. I think. Um, obviously, I'd agree with that. People, different people like different kinds of movies, and Marvel offers a variety. So there's gonna be other people who, you know, prefer Guardians because it's more their style of a movie. I can't tell you what style of music movie you should like, but yeah, yeah. I, I mean, think Guardians is, might be more fun than Winter Soldier is, but I yeah, it, it, despite the fact that I fucking love James Gunn, they're just not as well-rounded in films. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, and and I don't. Yeah, I mean, they're just they're simpler films. Nothing that like it's weird because in like Winter Soldier, a lot of the fights are you know one on one, two humans throwing fists at each other and everything feels like it has more consequences than in Guardians where it's like armies of spaceships shooting at each other and you're like, yeah, this doesn't feel like it's going to impact me in any way. Don't really care. Well, I feel like at the time, too, it was the one that was so different from the rest of the movies. Yeah. Um, Because even though, like, the first Captain America, of course, is like a World War II war movie and stuff, so I mean, it's a little bit different. But this, I feel like, at the time, just took kind of like a left turn. It's like, let's do a political thriller set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that gave it just its own feeling and everything. And I feel like that's really why it stuck out. Um, But then I do feel like since then, they've kind of lost that a little bit where they're given each movie like its own individual personality. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, yeah. I think, is the one that maybe you could argue with, but that's more in comparison to the first two movies than than anything else. But yeah, it seems like I will say it looks like they're going to fix one thing for Winter Soldier that I didn't like. But What's that? We'll see what happens. Well, 
uh, I really liked what they did with Crossbones. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, yeah, man, they really like turned him into a good villain. It's going to be interesting to see like what they do with him. And then, of course, they blew him up. But the next Avengers movie is pretty much guaranteed to be time travel shenanigans. And the actor who plays Crossbones... Frank Grillo. Yeah, Frank Grillo has another... Grillo. Has at least one more movie on his contract. So I think we're going to see... Crossbones come back in some time travel. We might see that. Yeah, yeah. You, can see, you can see anybody return next time. Yeah, I'm all about. I like. I love Frank Grillo. I think he's awesome. Yeah, I, I actually kind of wish that he would have been cast as the Punisher. As much as I like, uh, uh, what's his face, Shane from The Walking Dead. Yeah, uh, I think he does an awesome job. But it's just part of me is just like, man, I really wish. Frank Grillo could play the Punisher because I think he'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be cool. I was kind of hoping they were going to do a ramp up with him, you know, where like the first time you see him, he's just a shield agent, you know, mm-hmm. and then shenanigans happen. And then the next time you see him, he's kind of like a, a low to mid level terroristy kind of character where now he's got the you know, power fist and shit. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's fucking stuff up. And then I was hoping that it was going to be. The next time you see him, he's ramped up even more, and now he's like super villain. You know what I mean? Yeah. But no. At least not yet. So, yeah. The other thing I think Winter Soldier gets right is that that was the point in time where Marvel kind of put their foot down, and it it happened to come out around the same time as Man of Steel, and it was where they just kind of. It feels like a declaration by Marvel saying like no we're going to stand behind our characters in the field you know we yeah. rec- we recognize that these characters might seem outdated but if you know if your morality contradicts with Captain America's morality guess what you're wrong he's right and i i think that's one of the big strengths of the MCU is that they really try to bring true versions of these characters to the screen um, at least the ones that i know well enough to understand that that's what they're doing um yeah. So I think, and and I think that that's I think I to this day I think that's the success of Marvel is that they're bringing comics to the screen. You know, obviously adapting the storylines as needed for the different medium, but I think they're standing behind their source material, which is why we're all going to the theater in the first place is because because of that source material. So, mm-hmm. and this movie was the one where I felt like it it really pitted modern morality against the sort of old-timey Boy Scout morality of uh, Captain America and makes it pretty clear which one they think is the correct version. Yeah. So. Yeah, when that came out, I went on my friend uh, Ian's podcast, Talk Without Rhythm, which everybody should go listen to. And we had a discussion about that, about how I pretty much said, like, this is the best Superman movie they've ever made. That it basically, I mean, it did all the reasons that they pointed out with Man of Steel why they couldn't do like the big blue Boy Scout version of Superman they seem to take it and be like no that's that's exactly what we're going to do in this movie and show why having this morality is important especially in a modern context and they basically killed it and gave the giant middle finger to Man of Steel which I was all about yeah, and, I think and Winter Soldier's already actually like, and it's not even old yet. You know what I mean? It's not a new yeah. movie, but it's not an old movie. 
and it's already come back around in that weird way that science fiction movies tend to, in which it was made before we saw this uh, mm-hmm. fast, violent rise of neo-fascism. Yeah. And the movie's pretty much about government-sponsored neo-fascism. We live in a sad, sad world. <laughs> I was just trying to tell you I watched a good movie. I don't know why you guys keep making everything about being sad. No, but it's it's such a good movie, though, that it makes it... It's like, oh, shit. This was way more relevant now than it was when it was released. Yeah. Well, when it was released, it was... Think commenting on the whole NSA monitoring thing and the mm-hmm. idea that if you take away people's freedom in order to try to make them safer, you're really not making them safer because they're physically safe in a world where they don't have the freedom to do to exist. But yeah, whatever. I mean, yeah. but then it also had Nazis in it. Yeah, they were actually working in the government and nobody knew. Yeah. Well, and it was also this this idea of uh, militarizing weapons against citizenry for thinking differently than the way you want them to think. Which yeah. is a very Trumpian ideal. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can't really argue against that. Um, and whether you think that's right or wrong, I guess, is up to the individual listener to decide. But <laughs> it's... Uh, Doug, I don't think you understand. We're like two months away from living in Mad Max times down here, so. <sighs> no, we go in, we fight. <laughs> it impacts me too. He's trying to tear off yeah, some car parts we ship down there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the worst part of the whole thing is nobody wants to see me wearing like a weird Zardoz costume and a metal hockey mask riding on the back of the doom buggy with all my fat rolls and jiggling in the wind. No, nobody does. This is not, this good. Is not good for anybody, and that's just, where we are headed. For the record, this is why we record an audio podcast only, is just in case. I never wanted to risk seeing that. <laughs> I mean, my Zardoz jammies are pretty comfortable. <laughs> oh, that got dark quick. We were talking about Nazis at the beginning. Quick, move on to your next movie. Uh, yeah, the next movie wasn't very good. I'll mention it. Because otherwise you call me out if I don't mention stuff that showed up on Instagram. But uh, uh, I probably missed it. Uh, I, just, I, just, I watched this movie called The Neighbor. I don't know. I found it on Amazon Prime. And it looked oh, I did like see it, it could be intriguing. But it really wasn't. Um, so it's one of those ones where it's like suppose I think it's supposed to be a guy who's like becoming obsessed with his neighbor and it starts to like his hot neighbor wife girl and she's in an abusive relationship so he thinks he's protecting her but really he's getting you know possessive but it none of that worked so it ends up being like just two people doing a lot of gardening and then she gets punched by her husband and he goes in and tells him not to punch people so his wife leaves him for having the nerve to stand up to a spousal abuser and I don't know don't waste your time on it um, I, don't, I, I don't know what I'll say about it really you know you know when the movies like try to do something and it doesn't really work out and you're just like the whole time I'm like well is this like I was literally watching it and I'm like is he are we supposed to be watching a movie where he's like the hero protects his neighbor from her abusive spouse or are we watching the movie where he's 
like creepy weirdo that's becoming obsessed with the girl next door who just wanted some gardening tips and the movie ends and i'm like i still don't know and that's not good right like that's (laughs) you should know by the end and i mean okay so like full spoiler alert the movie kind of ends with him killing the abusive husband there's a confrontation and he kind of just smacks him with a golf club and he goes down presumably dead and it's like okay you're just sitting there going like like if that had happened at the beginning of the movie and the rest of the movie was them dealing with the consequences and trying to determine like how letting the characters play out okay was he being protective or was he you know killing his rival or whatever and then, but that's not what happened so i don't know why i'm thinking about it <laughs> so anyways don't watch that one if you're into like thrillers don't watch that thriller um and the other thing I watched, which was also kind of a disappointment, but not nearly as much of a disappointment, was uh, Amazonia, the Catherine Miles story, which is a, a lighthearted tale that is supposedly based on true events. That's the Amazon Prime description of it says, supposedly based on true events. And I'm like, all right. The use of the word supposedly can <laughs> watch this movie. <laughs> So even Amazon's like, look, we're we're not we're not committing to anything. They said it was based on true events, but well, wait till you see what goes on in this movie. <laughs> so, uh, Italian movie set in the Amazon jungle. Eighteen-year-old uh, schoolgirl goes to visit her parents who are living in South America, running a rubber tree plant. Um, they are killed off she is taken hostage by like an Amazonian tribe and forced to live with them. There's a weird thing where they have take, cut the heads off of her parents and brought them back to the <laughs> village they live in. And uh, they are basically, she's having being forced to live amongst them while her parents' heads are dangling in the middle of the courtyard for her to see. And she's, I think what's supposed to be happening is that she's supposed to be kind of falling for the guy that has like taken control of her but on the other hand she thinks he's the one that killed her parents uh there's what they think is a plot twist which is where they announce that he isn't necessarily the one that killed the parents but it's pretty predictable that he's not (laughs) and uh yeah the biggest problem with this movie is it's like it looks like a cannibalism movie but it doesn't actually have any cannibals in it which is a problem for me um Anytime there's like Amazonian tribesmen committing acts of violence, this movie is really fun to watch. There's like multiple like kill the guy now I gotta take his head as a trophy scenes where you get to watch him cut the head off. And it's like it's a great like low budget eighties effects. So that's awesome. But then there's a lot of time in between, which is just nothing really interesting is happening and it's like imagine it like Cannibal Holocaust, but if it had a plot it's like, well, you can't just edit a plot into this. That doesn't work. It's like, like, just have more violence on screen and less this being narrated. And so, yeah, when the when the plot twist comes that about who actually killed her parents, get kind of a revenge sequence at the end, and then the whole movie is actually told through uh, through bookends where she's telling this story in court supposedly it's based on this true event of this woman who was charged with these murders and but I just don't believe that like a woman in the eighties was taken hostage by like a year by an Amazonian tribe. 
That doesn't sound right to me. <laughs> and I, I just, uh, I tried Googling it. I couldn't come up with anything. So I'm like, I just don't think this is real at all. I think maybe, maybe a woman in the Amazon killed people once and got put on trial for it. And that's probably the only similarities. Like, this is bullshit. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. The, I mean... Again, this one's Amazon Prime. It's available for free if you have a membership. <laughs> you might want to fast forward to the fun, gory parts, but everything in between is really bad. So <laughs> now, the, if there had been a few more gory scenes, or the movie had just been shorter, I'd have probably enjoyed it because that's really all I was looking for going into this movie. But, yeah, so it's it's been hard lately. I haven't been watching anything really good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what next week I'll have something else that I rewatch just to make myself happy again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had to watch something that I knew was good uh, so, um, yeah. so that's it that's it for me So right. uh, I got a couple things first up I just want to uh, acknowledge a pretty awesome easter egg in last week's uh, Castle Rock um, so a character gets on a bus and is supposed to leave town but Decides to get off the bus at the next stop, like a like a Greyhound bus, and then walk back to Castle Rock. And the town he gets off in is uh, Salem's Lot, which I was super excited okay. about. the The scary thing is, is that he gets off the bus at night, and the entire city seems like there's nobody around. And you see a sign that's like 24 miles to Castle Rock, so he has to walk back. And I'm like, bitch, you better run. There's vampires all over this town. <laughs> There's vampires up in this bitch. <laughs> uh, and so I haven't watched this week's yet. So if he doesn't show back up in Castle Rock as a vampire, I'm going to be very upset. That could be really interesting, though, having a town full of vampires just one over from where you're telling your story. <laughs> Hopefully it's not just like a little Easter egg, because that would feel like a cheat. Yeah. I'm going to guess it probably is, but we'll see. Um, So then I watched two anthology movies. Uh, The first one is a movie called Ghost Stories, which just came out this year. Right. Uh, So the the main conceit is there's a guy who is pretty much like a debunker of like paranormal stuff. Uh, and we're shown this. Uh, he's basically like the uh, to catch a predator of like psychics. Okay. So these psychics, this like John Edwards esque psychic, where he stands up in front of everybody and is like, uh, "I'm getting a, I'm getting a John, uh, like that. Anybody, John, John, like he kind of does that bullshit." Yeah. Uh, and basically, then we we get the main character, and he's like. Okay, so this guy thinks we're here shooting a documentary about him, but we're here to like debunk that he's a psychic, and they're able to tune in and find out that he's getting info from someone backstage through an earpiece. Uh, so then, rather than like, you know, inviting him to a room and then like ambushing him, like you're not a real psychic, he literally just walks out on stage and starts like calling him out that he's a bullshit psychic or whatever in front of the entire audience. Which is kind of fun. Um, and then he sort of talks about how there's this famous guy 
and it's not really found footage. Like this first part, I think is playing into the he thinks we're here shooting a documentary about him, but then after like sort of this segment's done, they kind of do away with all that. Um, but he talks about this debunker who uh, sort of debunked like a haunting back in the seventies, and he did it on television. And he's like, I saw that when I was a kid. I became obsessed with that guy, so I kind of wanted to do that. And so uh, he, uh, um, so that's sort of like been his goal that he's going to do this. Uh, then he gets a call from the actual guy who had disappeared at some point and told him there's like three paranormal instances that he wants him to investigate because this guy who's the original debunker thinks they're real, but he's so like, his health is so bad he can't get out to do it. So each segment is this guy interviewing somebody about their paranormal experience. And uh, everybody really doesn't want to talk about it at first because, you know, obviously people think they're crazy. But um, so one guy's like a night watchman at like an old shutdown, like asylum, essentially. And you know how that, of course, is going to turn out. Uh, another one is a kid who hit a very weird like goat man type creature with his car out the middle of nowhere and then uh, the third one is a guy who thought he was being uh, haunted by a ghost while his wife was pregnant that's pretty much where I'll leave it since it's sort of just a newer movie and I don't want to give away too much but it uh, I really enjoyed it the ending is a little weird and I think that's going to turn some people off. Uh, I kind of just went with it and was fine with it. Uh, but I could see if someone's like, yeah, I was into it. There was some creepy shit, but then the ending was kind of like, Bleh. I'd be like, yeah, I, I could definitely see that. People having a problem with it. Uh, the weird thing is, apparently, <laughs> this is based off of a stage play who friends of mine had seen even before the movie was even thought of. And they said there's a weird tonal shift because the play plays like a dark comedy. And then the movie, like the segments are creepy as fuck sometimes. And so they're like, it's just weird seeing it going from sort of this dark comedy to legitimately creepy fucked up shit on being on screen for the movie version. So recommend i would say if you get a chance to watch it um, yeah yeah i i enjoyed it like i said but some people get turned off by the ending and i can completely see it but i kind of just just went with it um and then the other one i watched is a little movie called skeletons in the closet which uh uh the fuck are you supposed to say uh so Truth be told, like uh, the director and writer of this are a friend of mine, so okay. take that, take that however you will. You have a conflict of interest in reviewing this movie, but um, so I've been kind of around uh, while they've been making this movie for years now. Uh, so I watched it. They're ha- actually having the world premiere tomorrow up in Chicago. Um, which by the time you listen to this will have been two days ago, so that does nothing for you. 
But apparently they're they're uh, it's coming out on Blu-ray next month. I think in the middle of the month, right before Halloween. Um. So, the, I'm trying to think of how to explain it. The conceit is this girl has a babysitter, um, and the baby and she's the girl is watching this TV show. Very much has an '80s aesthetic. So she's watching this TV show where the it's essentially like a horror host show, but it's the widow and her dead husband Charlie. So essentially, they rent movies every week and then watch them, and then that's sort of the the show that's on the TV. And then the segments of this anthology are. Yeah, it's complicated. I told my friend this was going to be a problem when when he told me like how this was going to be, and I'm like, you know how you're going to try to explain this to people of why, like who's watching what, and you're separating people from the actual like movie by like three steps, but he didn't seem to care. So, um, so there's a segment where a girl gets to stay with her grandmother that she's never really met. Things do not go well. Um, two guys rob a bank and then uh, run into someone called the Dismantler in a junkyard. And what's the third one? Oh, there's an actress who fantasizes about killing her husband. And yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it hasn't come out yet, so I won't go too far into it. I will say, actually, uh, not a big fan of this movie. Oh, which, which I would tell my friend if he directly asked me, but he has not yet. So, well, because he knows you're too honest. Nobody wants yeah, to talk. Honestly. Probably. He's usually pretty good about criticism, but he is not. He's no. He knows I watched it. He has has not asked me my opinion, which he usually does. So, um, and he doesn't listen to this podcast. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. Just there's there's something when he was telling me the original idea for it, I did tell him. I feel like you're you're so many steps away from the actual story, the actual movie part of the movie, that it's gonna cause maybe uh, separation with the viewer but you know I told him so I did my part but yeah so I watched it uh, not really my cup of tea uh, I'm a big fan of most of his other movies though so I was kind of bummed when I when it was over and I was like oh, oh this this wasn't one of my favorites <laughs> so <laughs> Um, I do have a screening link to it if you would like it, Doug. Um, I gave it to Noah, but I don't think Noah's watched it yet. I, I have not watched it yet. I don't know. It sounds like you're recommending I not watch it. But. No. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But uh, my friend, he also did uh, that movie, The Rake, which just came out a couple months ago. Um, if you liked that one, then maybe give this a watch. Because he's a good filmmaker, but I don't know. There's something about this one that just did not gel with me so I feel but, like this guy just like stiffed you at like up with a tab or something somewhere along the line you're like oh no. no he was actually in my wedding party so oh so he's a good friend of mine it's just Tony's a good guy yeah this one didn't do it for me and I'm 
and I'm always honest with him about his movies, so I have to have to be honest and can't uh, give him a bullshit review, even though he hasn't directly asked me about it yet. Well, I appreciate your honesty because I've had a couple of things sent to me over the years that people are like, can you talk about this in your show? And I'm like, no, because... <laughs> I just, I just don't think it's fair for someone to send me a movie for me to review on the show, and that you're out. Yeah, yeah, and then they'd be like, "Well, didn't you watch it?" I'm like, yeah, I did, but I still don't think it's fair that I talk about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always want to encourage anybody who's making anything to keep making it. Like, oh, I'm totally. A big believer in that. And... Yeah, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, right. as long as like, you're happy with what you made, that's all that really matters. But yeah, I don't know this. This one didn't do it for me, but um, he has yet a third movie that's coming out this year. Um, well, he the thing is, he's worked on them, all three of these movies, over the past seven years. And the rake got taken away from him by the money people. And this was an anthology, so it's actually been recreated as an anthology three different times because different people would drop out and not do the shit they were supposed to do. Um, then the next one, called High on the Hog, he actually filmed with Sid Haig, and then the producer's been sitting on it forever, but I think it's finally coming out this year. So, so he's going to have a good year if all three of his movies get out. Uh, I should, for a filmmaker, that's probably considered a great year. Yeah. <laughs> High on the Hog finally coming out. It's probably the biggest fucking relief on the planet. <laughs> probably. Uh, for a long time. The funny thing is, I saw like an edit of it, like years ago, and I was like, "Yeah, it's good. It's a nice little because uh, it's." He described it more as like a um, sort of a grindhouse movie than a horror movie, which I would say it fits into. But then it didn't come out forever, and he got him and his friend who they edit together both got bored. So they completely re-edited the movie as more of a grindhouse movie, like straight up. And now it looks even better than what it did. So it was probably better that it ended up not coming out. Here's a brief glimpse of some of the truly fine pictures we've scheduled in the near future. Next week, week three of Slater September, we're going to be checking out the movie Heathers and teaming that up with the, the movie Sorority Row, which is the more modern remake of House on Sorority Row. That's from, um, when is that from? Like 2010 or something? A, yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, it's a movie that, in my opinion, and maybe you guys will disagree when you watch it, uh, actually turned out to be a good slasher movie, which I was floored by because I figured it would be garbage. But then I kept hearing people like, no, it's actually like a really good horror, like a slasher movie. And I'm like, well, that can't be right. So let me prove them wrong by watching it, and then actually ended up enjoying it. So, um, is there a non-spoiler way for you to tell me how a slasher movie lines up with Heather's, other than just a few people die in it? Um, well, from what I remember of Heather's, is they accidentally kill somebody at the beginning. Yeah. Correct. I've only seen Heather once, and it was forever ago. And then the conceit of Sorority Row is they're playing a prank on someone and someone dies by accident. And then a year later, some they start getting picked off one by one. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. I know what you did on Sorority Row. Sort of, yeah. yeah. Sort of. 
but I think it actually works halfway decent. So we'll, we'll see. It's, if it's a good slasher, I'm all about it. I love slashers. Yeah. So. I feel like it's a good slasher. Uh, if anything, Carrie Fisher's in it. That'll make you. That'll make you a little sad, probably. But probably. Uh, she plays the house mother for the sorority. Yeah, I think I remember intentionally not seeing this. Like I said, I did too until I kept hearing from people that actually enjoy horror movies saying, no, it's actually surprisingly good. But it kind of got glossed over when it came out. So then I watched it and I was like, holy shit, it is actually good. And then now it's time to review it. So we'll see. Maybe you guys will watch it and be like, no, this was pure garbage. And maybe I'll rewatch it and be like, no, this was pure garbage. I don't even know why I recommended this. You say that wrong. We might watch it and go, hey, this is pure garbage. <laughs> this is pure garbage. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, one of us will enjoy it if it's terrible. <laughs> so you're saying someone at least will enjoy it, no matter what. It'll either be good and I'll enjoy it, or it'll be terrible and no one will enjoy it. If it's mediocre, that's when we'll be all pissed off. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Good night.